0: multi-tier, multi-part series on the history of free time. And uh, I know that's a bit of like a broad subject, but there's a lot of uh, conversation right now about what is free time, what constitutes free time. uh, A lot of discussion, I think, surrounding value, surplus labor, the division of labor, uh, and also like how we can essentially own our temporalities. And, you know, this has been, this has been actually like a, a a thought that I've been, you know, jumbling around with, I think, especially since the end of COVID. Uh, I, I recently saw something it it was like this cursive written hard post that just said bring back coronavirus 2020 and I, w- I was thinking to myself you know not obviously not for everybody because you had people who were essential workers who had to you know work through the entire thing um but also there was there was a dual side to to the pandemic in that it actually sort of like lifted, uh, the sort of social responsibilities that people have that can be, I think, especially in urban centers, a very sort of arbitrary, uh, for, for the sake of optimization, making connections, uh, you know, uh, solidifying a social circle so you can travel upward within, uh, whatever sort of like career you're in. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, hitting me that that people are really struggling right now with what is time, what is the history of time in regards to labor. And, and I'm specifically, especially for this part, uh, going to go into it from the perspective of the American tradition. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, labor movements who gave us the weekend you know people say you know the unions the labor unions they are the people who solidified and gave us the weekend uh and i think that there's a bit of truth to that but it's not completely all accurate so i'm going to kind of go through a historiography of who gave us free time and you know sort of like a spoiler uh it actually was not The the secular union laborists who did that. It was actually the Sabbateans and the Protestants. So the entire notion of the Protestant work ethic, I think, is a bit fake and dishonest, uh, only because it wasn't until we had secularized Protestantism from the Reformationists themselves that we were Seeing this, we were supposed to at least Keynes predicted at a certain juncture with within our contemporary time we would be along with the advances in technology and fixed capital we would be able to achieve a ten-hour workday. Now that clearly hasn't moved uh, according to plan. So this is kind of the contained guide to. Uh, how we can reclaim time. Because also another thing I've noticed is I think a lot of language uh, is sort of done in vain. I think a lot of this stuff, and I'm just reevaluating my position in so much of life, I think, especially now with this uh, heavily informatic and data-driven world we live in, you know, a lot of it has to do with just stacking positive data on top of the stuff and and sort of burying it and sort of course correcting on what we can do to actually create value in the lives of others. Because um, I don't really want to just make content for content's sake anymore. Like that doesn't really interest me. Uh, I think people are sort of tired of it. What I'm mostly interested in is how can we do something and move towards something generative to liberate people and actually... Um, help them sort of achieve the things that they want. And I think time is ultimately uh, fundamental to that. Um, Somebody who was really sort of influential to me, and along with the original sort of group of what was known as the Unconditional Accelerationists, which was a a group that, uh, uh, you know, of Twitter people, bloggers, you know, it was sort of called Cave Twitter, Edmund Berger uh, was a was a big one, and um, Thomas Murphy. And then you had uh, Dam Jehu, who sort of influenced the whole thing. And there's a lot of speculation and talk about him because he has an incredibly idiosyncratic uh, political economy based off of an incredibly doctrinaire, yet yielding something very unorthodox within... Uh, a Marxian framework. Uh, And I don't want to say Marxian lightly, because he's very, very sort of orthodox and doctrinaire. But, you know, he's been incredibly influential in terms of what he brings to the table, uh, and, you know, people sort of responding to the concepts he's put forth. Now, his most I would say, I wouldn't say he's famous by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he's a, he's, you know, an, an older gentleman, uh, African American, you know, sort of like internet crank guy. But his whole concept uh, is communism is free time and nothing else. And so you see a lot of people online, you know, and they're saying this. And there's also, you know, interesting enough, there's a lot of uh speculation into the fedness and the susness of the dirtbag left movement and these are people who are pro-state you know uh they're essentially status now jehu is very interesting and this is where he merges with a kind of like libertarianism in so far that he wants to abolish the state because the state ultimately are the guardians of property rights and of essentially we have a bloated federal government that works with, you know, these laborists and has throughout the 20th century and, and earlier than that, because at first the labor movements in the U.S. they started because they were negotiating actually on behalf of shortening the workday. More than anything else, uh, they were they the initial attempt was to do that. Now, where did they get that from? Very sort of interesting. Uh, the Protestants and the Reformationists, and also you have deists like uh, Henry David Thoreau and a Walt Whitman, who saw Walt Whitman especially in his writing on Democratic Vistas that the highest ideal of American progress is securing free time. And he was a, a, a radical Promethean. Walt Whitman, I'm sure... Many of you know who he is. He's our America's sort of like de facto poet. I think one of the greatest uh, people that we can learn from today. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at a few books. Uh, and I'm going to, I, I did a lot of research for these episodes, uh, a lot of reading, just to sort of go back and try to figure out what is free time, like what is island time? What is temporality? How does it measure up with our day-to-day? And what can we do to secure a more sort of like liberating lifestyle? Because it's all fun and games. We can talk about art and we can talk about these sort of like abstract concepts and math themes and whatnot. But at the, but at the end of the day, the thing I just, I see people struggling the most with is this notion of not having enough time to pursue the kind of education they want, especially in this sort of like incredibly oversaturated infosphere where information itself is competing for our attention and diverting our attention away from interesting concepts, interesting historical concepts, things that can actually help us so uh, I'm I'm mostly interested in just finding the in the direct source information of whatever those things are, so that we can sort of talk about it. And and you know from a personal standpoint, uh, you know, I've been doing a sort of freelance thing for a long time, and there's a lot of questions in terms of the grind set culture uh what is a capitalist who is a worker and there is a sort of internalized process where you know hegel said this was sort of like the internal master-slave dialectic the master who takes the whip and whips himself uh convinced of to that he is a man who is indeed free so there's that component too and there's the division of labor in terms of the state, which is basically the sort of largest sector of unproductive labor, and then everybody else, and you know, a lot of the the discourse uh, surrounding stuff like baristas are they proletarian? Are they not? Uh, you know, American leftists they love to argue about this like sort of asinine bullshit. Are MAGA uh, or whoever you know who is a proletarian? And I think it's I think it's fairly simple. If you are a part of the state which you know sells futures and reserves back to itself through the form of speculative investments that's completely superfluous labor intellectual labor there is it creates an abundance of zero value so i i think we have a lot more in common than we have apart And I'm mostly sort of interested in going through a kind of history of that. Uh, You know, just from from a very personal point of view, I remember when I was younger, you know, and I didn't go to college, really, you know, and uh, I would just get these jobs in like factories. And I just remember like feeling so sad and I write these ballads these sad songs about, you know, what it was like in the factory. And also the way you were treated when you came out of it, the way society looked at you. And I would just think to myself, if I just had more time, I could I could accomplish my dreams. Now with all of this, uh, you know, with all of the sort of advances in, artificial intelligence and predictive programming we could decouple those technologies to indeed liberate ourselves but why are we not doing that and this is kind of an investigation into why we're not doing that some of us are but i think in order to realize it for everybody else you know walt whitman said the true elite of society are the people who Secure freedom for themselves secure comp contemplation for themselves, but they also liberate and help others And I think that's incredibly important right now to help other people I I don't think there's anything greater, you know, there used to be this linking uh, especially with the American ideal that it was Patriotic to sort of be charitable in what you gave to others not just fiscally but To help them realize their dreams and the higher ideals of progress of democratic progress, which include Ultimately the time and the right to education We have all of this information out there and it's it's increasingly competing for our opinions and managing public perceptions and and social consciousness and to me I think we really have to sort of step back, which is why I'm, <laughs> which is kind of like why I'm doing this because, you know, I feel, I feel kind of wrong, not wrong, but because so much of the things that we do are set within various contexts. You know, you start a podcast and then you start doing it a lot because COVID happens and you're reduced to this sort of world of words in this world of language and you st- and you think to yourself we can just keep going on forever but you know hardware is real and it takes up real tangible space there are borders there are surfaces there are things that we run up against and you know and i just sort of from the bottom of my heart like this is something i really feel like needs to sort of be expressed in a in a not necessarily a linear way but in a sort of solidified way that isn't you know amenable to instantaneous responses uh coming from all different sides so you know sort of uh stepping away from the interview format and getting into something like this i think is really important and like i said i've read a few books on it um science and religion in, in the america uh Free time, uh, by Benjamin Klein Honeycutt. Uh, various passages from Marx Volume Three. Uh, you know, I know people are like, eh, you know, you stop talking about Marxism. It's like, no, no, there's some good stuff in there. Just, just hold on. Like, this isn't dogmatic. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure something. <laughs> you know, we're we're just trying to figure stuff out. And and uh, there were some there are some points made. So this is kind of a foray into the exploration of that. Uh, you know, going through everyone from the, ar- the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright and his kind of philosophical vision, uh, coming from his Unitarian background, you know, his father was a pastor, uh, and also sort of putting to rest some of the rumors associated with uh, Protestantism and working for a means in it to an ends in and of itself, which I think is is utterly preposterous and and we're seeing that so much with like grinding uh, grind set culture and hustle culture and and people think assuming that they're free by doing this, but you know it's like we see the misery not only, within themselves but if we don't start to realize this for others like it's gonna fold back onto us like this this what what we're doing right now is completely unsustainable so this is sort of an introduction to all of that and hopefully people can get something out of this um there's a lot of information here uh (laughs) like way more than usual but I'm hoping it's the correct information. I'm hoping it's something that can actually go out and help somebody as opposed to something that's forgettable that, you know, you just sort of glance over and you're like, oh, wow, this this kind of sets me back uh, to where I, to where I am. You know, we're, we're sort of past the age of friendship simulators. Uh, parasociality, you know it needs to be shot in the head and put to rest once and for all because it is fascist. it really is. We can't keep imposing uh, ourselves and our lore and our narratives onto onto others forever, you know because that's denying them their right to experience things for themselves, and so with that um, we're going to get into the first part of this foray into this is the contained guide to free time and nothing else Okay, so before I get into sort of some of the uh, bibliographies and stuff like that, I think it's important to sort of talk about a bit of the etymology behind the concept of leisure. Now, you know, th- there's various conflicting sources because a lot of this stuff goes back to the Greeks, it goes back to Aristotle, it goes back to Pankration, which is the introduction of the unarmed combat sport in the Greek Olympic Games Um, but it also leisure as we nominally understand it today uh, as a sort of concept not a ideal or a vista um, but just as we see today sort of emerged in the Victorian era and the word Leisure, from Latin, is, uh, means to be permitted or to be free. Uh, the old French definition is leisure, uh, and it first appeared in the early 14th century. Um, basically, uh, the simple definition of leisure is time spent out of work An essential domestic activity. Leisure is the disposition of receptive understanding of contemplative motivation for its own merit. Now, contemplation is the key word here. Uh, Not contemplation, but contemplative. Uh, Only because uh, ultimately leisure entails a kind of progress, you know? Now we sort of see it as like, you know, people jerking off to Netflix and vegging out and, you know, whacking off to porn and shit. You know, that's that is kind of like, I guess you can say the dystopian Funko Wally vision of leisure, which is completely divorced from the initial sort of uh, understanding of what it was, what it meant for people uh, within the sort of uh, reformationist traditions as well and it has to meet three criteria. One is the experience is a state of mind. So it's a, it's a, it can be an aesthetic state of mind. It can be an intellectual state of mind, but it's a conscious state of mind. It's self-reflexive in understanding that, okay, this is my leisure. Okay. Two, it must be entered into voluntarily. So it's almost kind of interesting because, you know, I have a lot of negative opinions about, uh, compulso- compulsory, uh, education and, you know, how it's basically like a human prison that, you know, feeds in souls and turns them, it, you know, it, it traditionally churn them out into like good soldiers and good citizens. Uh, so recess is, is almost like the involuntary version of that. Okay. And three, it must be intrinsically motivated by its own merit. So, You know, leisure incurs a kind of cost, you could say, Um, but the, so the Greek word for leisure in the origin of the Latin word, it's basically scala, which translates to school. So to the Greek mind, the primary function of leisure was not necessarily recreational, but to expand one's awareness and understanding of the world. The social context of understanding of leisure has to a large extent been lost. And with it, the notion of leisure being the pursuit of philosophy. Now, philosophia, philosophy is one of the great hallmarks of leisure. So when people say philosophy is a waste of time, well, you're, you're basically telling all of history that philosophy is indeed worthless. <laughs> so um, I think uh, you know, we kind of have to reclaim that mindset, the, the mindset to do research, the mindset to sort of have these kind of like hobbies and whatnot. Um, but leisure time is thought to have emerged Uh, in Victorian Britain in the late 19th century, uh, basically late in the Industrial Revolution when, you know, people were working themselves to death. You did have children in coal mines. You you know, people were working like 14-hour days and whatnot. Um, So that's a big component of it as well, at least how we understand it today. So the early factories during rapid industrialization uh, they required the workers to perform super long shifts, uh, up to eighteen hours a, a day, with only Sundays off work. Sundays were traditionally the Sabbath, um, and you know the people who fought for it uh, uh, to secularize that day were people. Uh, we're going to get into this a bit later. Let me. Just, I'll just get through this uh, uh, first. Um, but by the 1870s, more efficient machinery, and this is why we're going to get into sort of liber- uh, liberating effects of technology, uh, and the emergence of trade unions, which I'll also get into, and in they're kind of like suspicious activities in the 20th century, which actually impeded our progress, um, much like the Dirtbag Left is doing and people like Chapo Trap House, they are keeping us within this sort of of qualitative uh, disposition where we're beholden to these things like begging for our healthcare, begging for this, begging for that, instead of harnessing the flows, the progressive flows of capital, of technology, of, uh, of production, and liberating ourselves with these tools, much like uh, GW Leibniz envisioned early on. Um, So, you know, so it was essentially thought that we would decrease uh, the working hours per day. And it allowed the industrialists to give Saturdays off as well as Sundays. Um, This is true, but we also, it's critical to, f- to find out the people who actually gave us the weekend. So, so we're going to get into that as well. Um, basically, okay, so we're going to start with a book by Benjamin Klein Honeycutt called Free Time, uh, which I think is, is fantastic. I loved it. Um, I thought just, just the absolute world of it. And it's, it's called Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream. And we can people talk about the division of labor, especially within Marxist terms, but we should also talk about the division of leisure from this sort of classical version to this kind of like... Um, Kojev, he talks a bit about this, about how the post-historical man the, the man at the end of modernity is, is somebody who, you know, Hegel talks about, at least in his uh, vision of like the master and the slave, he talks a lot about stuff like, uh, you know, how, and this is where Marx gets his whole notion of the proletarian as the sort of like prime motivators of, histor- of history, is that the, the aristocrats are essentially animalistic. The bourgeoisie is animalistic because they cannot recognize themselves in a universal struggle, so they sit back and they exist purely on the basis of hedonistic consumption. There's there's no mutual recognition there. So they don't recognize themselves as a as somebody who is Potentially exploited. So they have no basically way to like gauge. You know, this is kind of why you see like ultra privileged people, like people who are like fucking billionaires and shit, just like, or like anybody. They're just like whining and crying about the most art. Like it's never enough for them. They can never get enough. And so, but what he said was, is at the end of history, and this is something that Boris Groys echoes a bit as well. That eventually the people who were known as the proletarian, the people who would, you know, cause the revolution through uh, commodification and through entertainment became, uh, got the simulacra of aristocratic, smug, animalistic satisfaction. So basically, what happened was like they were able to, you know, the porn was there to, to fucking goon off to. You know, they could jerk themselves off. Uh, there was enough entertainment around for them to sort of simulate it while their material conditions were in fact crumbling. And we're getting worse. And we're starting to see that now. I mean, how many people, it's just so fucking obvious that shit just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And nobody wants to fucking admit it. They, they all admit it, but nobody wants to talk about why that is. And so you have these asinine things like it's if we just had democratic socialists uh you know basic feds in the fucking white house okay well you know we've seen how that goes we understand how like media works and a system is as a system functions and then we also have these people who are just kind of like you know right wingers and and whatnot and they're just sort of like Oh no, things are great. You're just inferior if you can't make it in today's society. But based off what meritocracy? Like it, the point is that our our system isn't mer- meritocratic because it doesn't offer the kind of initial uh, scholastic contemplative leisure that was informative of the classical societies that they uh, <laughs> that that they themselves kind of venerate and espouse. So again this is um this is a a super important stuff to to talk about not just the division of labor what is productive labor what is unproductive labor but the division of leisure it's like the wally fucking fat guy uh you know fucking like gooning himself off in a cave like no 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 that's not leisure you are being exploited through a process of commodification through a process of endless consumption. And this is the problem with content creation, uh, which is why I only want to do stuff like this stuff that I think can be valuable for people. And you know, that they can, that can, I hope it helps people. Like I really do. That's my, that's my only intent. So, um, but you know, you so we're starting to see that as well. Uh, you know, people who are just fucking like completely unaware, and you know, it's just like it's the necropolis of the living dead. And I think that is uh, super interesting, at least in terms of like uh what it means to to qual- like, be alive. You know, it's like we're sort of in this zombified state of, of, you know, people call it sheep. I don't want to, you know, make it a political term. I just think we're we're sort of numb to our own sort of capacities. And I think ultimately the most important way we can reclaim our time is to reclaim the initial vision of that of what that was. So yeah. Basically, we're gonna. I'm gonna go through a lot of thinkers, a lot of history, to sort of frame uh, these kind of theses and arguments, so that we can kind of like you know, uh, you know, and we can sort of divide them because you know, capitalist societies uh, they view leisure positively. And I think, you know, socialist countries, it's a little bit different. But the capitalist countries view leisure positively from the framework of, like, can we make money off of this entertainment? You know, because ultimately that's what it is. Like, you know, the whole notion of public works and public parks was to basically give people, you know, this is why you had saloon culture in the uh in the 1900s, and the 1800s, it was a place outside of commodification where people could have subaltern systems of uh, bartering, of socialization away from the market forces of capitalism. This is why we got to have saloons. We got to have card clubs. We got to go, uh, I'm all about river maxing. Uh, that's super important. Going out to the creek uh, you know, experiencing the kind of public places and the, and the beauty of America's because America is so beautiful, and I love this country more than anything in the world. Uh, it's it's just it's everything to me, and it's all right here. And, and we have this wellspring of talent and this wellspring of public space, and we're not using it. We're, we're not using it in the right ways. We're having fucking like fucking indie sleaze revivals like that's, that's not good enough man you know and part of the beauty of living out in Texas for the past few years was like I got to really experience that you know and there's so many great parts of America and it is such a beautiful place and I love it so much and we have to go back and find the original American ideals that people fought and died for um, because now people are dying in these imperialist wars set up in cahoots with the afl cio with the people who supposedly uh barter for our collective labor rights you know these are the people who are sending bodies out increasing the labor force to enter us into these wars like they're as responsible as anybody else so all of this like socialist shit like Let's just put this to rest. I know subliminal jihad, uh, Dimitri, he's been going off uh, on Twitter saying, Chapo our feds. You know, a lot of what is, you can reveal a lot by what you do not comment on. If If you're not going critiquing the Malthusian agendas, if you're not going out and talking about things that actually affect us and, you know, function as they should, as they say they should, because it's enough to say like, oh, this is my socialist DSA fucking yuppie utopia. I'm going to have like parties and shit, whatnot. Um, But you have to see like, what are the ends here? Like what is going to come out of this? So um, I'm really sort of excited to get deeper into this with everybody. And and if anybody has any questions, just feel free to hit me up. Uh, I'm I'm super excited. This is one of my favorite things to talk about in the world. I hate talking, um, but this I think is is really good stuff. Okay, so we're going to get into Benjamin Klein Honeycutt's book, Free Time. Which sort of details free time as the initial American ideal. And the forgotten American dream. So Benjamin Klein Honeycut is he's basically like this professor uh at University of Iowa and he's a he's an older fellow um, and he's focused Basically, and he's incredibly well researched on, the, on a, a historical mystery uh, to what happened to the end, the ideal, the end of shorter working hours and leisure. So, um, like, why, after a century of steady work reductions in which work hours were nearly cut in half, uh, uh, seen as an essential part of human progress? Uh, And why so many people, including John Maynard Keynes, uh, expected the process to continue, did working hours stop getting shorter and the dream of increasing time disappear? Uh, He also sort of goes into uh, work as this modern quasi-crypto religion. Uh, which, you know, I, I like to sort of resist uh, analogy stuff like the cathedral, the vampire castle. You know, I think these these can be sort of like lazy substitutes. But he doesn't go. It, it's it's a little more nuanced than that. Um, but what he he talks a lot about uh, does a lot of research into alternative work schedules: the four day week, the thirty hour work, uh, four day. Uh, four-hour day, the 30-hour week, Um, and I think this stuff is really super interesting, and he prefaces this book uh, by talking a little bit about his research. He says, for nearly 36 years I've been struggling to solve what I am convinced is one of the great mysteries of our time. Like all good stories, this one can be sketched out quickly and simply. Beginning in the early 19th century and continuing for over a hundred years, working hours in America were gradually reduced, cut in half according to most accounts, and this is true for most modern industrial nations. Few other economic or social movements lasted as long or involved as many people. Few developments excited the imaginations of so many or encouraged such hope for the future. Counted as one of the great blessings of technology, the process lasted so long <coughs> that observers during the first decades of the 20th century agreed that it was bound to continue. No one predicted that it was going to end. And, and you know, prominent figures such as John Maynard Keynes, Julian Huxley, uh, and and other economists uh, predicted well before the end of the 20th century that a golden age of leisure would arrive when no one would have to work more than two hours a day. And so uh, he, we were almost on the verge of meeting these ancient economic challenge, but something went awry. Something happened. And you know, there's a sort of like multitudinous explanation to why this is. And he calls it our century's greatest challenge. And I I 100% agree with this. Um, You know, one of the things I've wanted most, you know, just from like my days sort of uh, in the factory is, you know, just this feeling. And it was just this like sort of horrifying feeling of the day ending being tired and dreading the next day so much you know like i would just i hated going into that factory i hated dealing with what i had to deal with you know i also hated the stigmatization that went along with uh what i was doing at that time you know and i think some of that came from uh you know Maybe like this position of privilege when I was younger where it's like I I sort of thought better, like I wouldn't have had to end up in this position. You know, this wasn't something that I that I ever saw for myself, but yet here I am. But besides all of that, it was just feeling like I had no time to myself. And the only thing I could express was like I wrote a lot of songs about, you know, on an acoustic guitar about what it was like. You know, what, what it, it was almost, you know, it's kind of like old, you know, the, there's a history to this, you know, there's a history in slave spirituals, you know, uh, ex- these sort of like primitive means of expression of, of the escape from, from bondage, uh, the blues, blues music is another one, you know, a lot of blues musicians were sharecroppers, um, and, and I'm not saying that that was my position at all. I'm just saying, like, relatively, um, it was incredibly depressing. A- and I really sort of actually, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit to, to his work and his writing on uh, Jacques Ranciere, who I think is one of, you know, he gets labeled a volunteerist, he gets labeled all these things. He was a sort of Marxist theorist, but he was very idiosyncratic. He was incredibly uh, critical especially after his break with, uh, structuralists such as Louis Althusser. So Jacques Rancier uh, he observed that, uh, for American workers, uh, they were basically granted the ability to live into their new freedom, experimenting with various possibilities, revising and enlarging their vision of what the new leisure meant for them and might mean for future generations, and enjoying their lives in ways never before possible. So, so Ranciere, um, his book, uh, La Nuit des Proletariens, which translates into The Night of the Proletarian, um, it's a pretty, actually, you know what that book is, uh, it's it's a fairly like, it's pretty critical of the kind of like Marxist notions about, you know, what laborers and what workers and what people want. He actually says it's like what they want most is they value their free time. They value their nights in the saloons. They value um, exactly sort of like the opposite of this just kind of like, you know, like uh, on one hand, obviously money matters, wages matter, but more than anything else, what they value is free time. You know, it's like stacking paper, stacking dollars. Unfortunately though, today we live in a kind of like grind set culture and I'm going to get a little bit more into that and try to actually sort of create a bit of a synthesis between this notion of free time and also being chul Han uh, and some of the stuff he has to say about optimization culture and optimization society. Um, But he talks about an evocative... So, uh, The Night of Proletarians is a kind of like an evocative account of a few hundred Parisian artisans and shop owners who their fate... Was very similar to the workers of America. And uh, what they really wanted was something as broad as freedom. And uh, so, you know, work and the rest of their lives had become so stark that they began to cherish their free time moments as never before and to envision their freedom in new ways. So the envisioning of freedom in new ways, I think, is a major component of how we're going to sort of define free time going ahead into the future. Uh, That new innovative forms of leisure, I think, is... Ultimately, very, very important. So I'll also get into that a bit later as well. But he talks about this account of Luis Gabriel Ghani, who set to describe an entire vision of life, an unusual counter-economy which sought ways to reduce the workers' consumption of everyday goods so he would be more independent of the market economy. So not only is it bargaining for sort of like higher wages, but finding new ways to finpunk it, as I like to say. Finance punk is kind of similar in that you're living within your means so that money when it comes in small amounts means a lot to you because you're able to secure your own freedom outside of these uh marketizing forces you know and also some it's also something that shifts because it's an aesthetic thing to where you can also evade expropriation so living into bits and pieces of free time, the workers were able to carve out of their work days uh, new possibilities, revising and enlarging their vision with what the new freedom meant for them and might mean for future generations. So this is all stuff that I find really important. And he, here's a quote from his book, those nights snatched from the normal round of work and repose. They began to erode the feudal barriers between the literate elite and the rest of the nation. And Ranciers' workers began to struggle with fundamental questions of their being, with meaning, purpose, identity, destiny, community, using the language and techniques available to them, claiming to do literature, poetry, painting, and philosophy as their natural rights. So the the ability to create... Is also very, very important. Now, obviously you're gonna you're gonna have people that are gonna go back off to their whack shacks and they're gonna jerk off a bunch and and you know the the amount of consumption and entertainment to keep us within a palliative, submissive state is very vast. Like there's no contending with that. But again, like this stuff is is intended for a target of audience, right? Like this is for people, I should primer this, as, this is sort of like an example for people who actually want uh, the higher sort of American vistas that were envisioned by our founding fathers and by people like Walt Whitman and Thoreau, uh, who sought contemplation and leisure as as a basic bedrock and founding principle of The United States now that's long gone, but like I said, this is for people who who want that pioneer like uh, to, To live in that pioneer like state so in in sort of his criticism of like Marxism he talks about The night of the proletariat in escaping as much as possible the new forms of work discipline that capitalism required and in imagining the alternative social order outside of the economy, so he observed, uh, basically, to quote Rancier, the grand modernist narratives, his little stories of workers taking an afternoon walk or straying far from the solid realities of the factory and the organized struggle, have no historical importance. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty, like, I guess you could say harsh criticism of of marxism even though he comes from that tradition which i think is what makes him interesting as a volunteerist but it's also works in line with marx because you know marx and, and specifically Engels in many of his letters talked about the real movement as something that's uh, a movement of becoming this is kind of in the grungerous as well and that it's not something that you can label you know it's 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 just the real movement it's it's a material reality that um that escapes categorization even under the framework of marxism itself so like marx was kind of like the first anti-marxist in a certain way which is why we we have to grant him some leeway um but to quote rancière he goes uh, Uh, that modern historians tend to confirm the existing social order, which has always been built on the simple idea of the vocation of workers is to work and to struggle. Good progressive souls add, and that they have no time to lose in wandering writing and thinking. This is the reason why our severe theorists and historians decided that the night of the proletarians was literature rather than history. So it got... Trashed by a lot of people on the left, a lot of people, uh, you know, within these kind of like socialist movements, uh, only because, as we can see, especially with the collaboration of the left and the state, especially in the United States, every single party basically kowtowed uh, to the government's imperial expansionist projects. And part of those projects were actually. Uh, supported through the laborists and uh, what they were doing to sort of psyop and mobilize the masses to take up these laborist causes instead of bargaining for their own collective freedom away from the struggle of work itself. And so this is, to me, a fundamental, crucial point. If if we want to change history, if we want to change time, this is much more important than that. So the Chapo cells and all of the people on the sort of like dirtbag left to sort of glorify the DSA and uh, whatnot. I mean, it's it's sort of amazing that they they think that there's never been any sort of infiltration. It's like God damn it, your entire movement has been manufacturing consent for wage slavery for fucking over a hundred years like what are you guys talking about your your whole shit is fucking blown it's a psyop and i'm not saying take up a right wing cause or anything like that we have to we have to imagine something other than this and i think that's really sort of what makes it interesting uh also rancier he recalls that in the third book of Plato's Republic, Socrates advanced the notion that humans were naturally divided into two classes, those who have to work and those who have leisure to govern and search for truth. Socrates reckoned that little could be done about such a condition and that the latter would always have to guide the former because the gods had mixed gold with the souls of the philosopher rulers, but iron with the souls of the workers. So... Ranciere rejected that. He said there is, and I think this is a really interesting, uh, not an interesting, but I think uh, a very sort of prescient concept that he brings forward. He goes, uh, Ranciere says that there is no popular intelligence occupied by practical things, nor a learned intelligence devoted to abstract thought. There is only one intelligence devoted to the real and another devoted to fiction. It is always the same intelligence. He offered as proof his Parisian artisans who claiming the leisure to read, write, and philosophize laid claim to golden souls. And, you know, just from personal experience, there were a lot of people I had worked with in the past in these kind of jobs. And the thing that they wanted most was like, they were just like, Man, you know, if I could just get out of this factory and go to trade school, and I could better my life. I can learn something. You know, education doesn't have to be in the form of the critical theory or philosophy. It can come in many different ways, but it is that notion that you could advance your lot in life and progress and secure your own freedom. And, you know, maybe with these better careers, these these better jobs, you can eventually get to that place. But if you're in this cycle of just, you know, hand to mouth, which, you know, 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their bank account. I think knowing that we have to start creating value for people. We really do. Uh, That's something I, I genuinely believe in. So, to end that, Ranciere's representation of workers' visions of life, independent of the market economy, transcend what he called the kingdom of modern work. A vital insight about how to read first-hand accounts of American workers' struggle for shorter hours. So, he's got some really great stuff in here. And... This sort of wraps up uh, the section on Jacques Ranciere. But I, but I really want to get into the Americans uh, just because, you know, I'm American. I love listening to Leonard Skinner. Uh, I love hot dogs. You know, this is... Uh, but, but what we're seeing is that this applies in a more uh, sort of cross-culturally... That free time isn't something that is just merely an American ideal. That uh, people like Dupay, who, uh, you know, were these kind of Parisian laborers, they wrote a lot and they, in their free time, on how to secure free time for themselves and the freedom that they desired. And so, I just kind of want to preface this, which is, which is why I started with Jacques Rancière. Because I think it's important for people internationally to also uh, note that this can apply to them too, that this is not simply just uh, like an American cultural ideal. It's rooted in, in something much deeper than that. So, JGA Pocock, uh, he sort of emphasized that uh, personal independence, selfless duty to the state, and uh, valor were the primary virtues of pre revolutionary America's country ideology. Uh, something more along the lines of like classical republicanism and civic humanism uh but also looking back to the antiquity in Aristotle, uh, and he, you know, he sort of talked about like prioritizing a civic and patriotic rather than a leisure or Arcadian character, um, although uh, the leisured and Arcadian are aspects of civic humanism, uh, especially during the colonial and earlier national periods. So, So, nevertheless, Republican expectations about the promotion of civic humanism in leisure were limited, confined, for the most part, to an educated aristocracy still struggling with old Machiavellian notions about the importance of competition for distinction and recognition. So, uh, this is kind of what breaks America from its uh, feudal, uh, gentried, red-coat, Tory... Uh, forbearers is this notion that uh, freedom and free time was something that can be experienced for all which which i think is kind of reflective of the world we live in today um especially with like jeffersonian democracy still being this kind of like ideal and that higher progress the democratic advance of freedom beyond political liberty and economic struggles Uh, was first described in the American colonies in sermons and religious tracts speculating about the coming of God's kingdom. So this, I think, is really kind of uh, important to talk about uh, because it concludes with this like conversation about the kingdom of God in America, which seems closely related to that of the American dream uh, which James Truslow Adams and other sort of Protestant Reformationists had used in interpreting American history. So, Edward's theme of God's redemption of the world are both the core of the Christian movement in America and central meaning and significance of American culture. So, a lot of people... At that moment who were actually sort of fighting for leisure and Arcadian leisure were were actually Christian people within the Christian movement, a lot of Unitarians, uh, a lot of people who were sort of. Uh, invested in secularizing free time from the Sabbath so that the Sabbath was not sort of like your only time for leisure and contemplation. And also there were just material necessities out of people being grossly uh, and critically overworked during that period. Um, But this isn't stuff that's unique to a kind of like Christian uh, tradition Something of a kind of like main mainline Protestantism because a rabbi Abba Hillel silver wrote that the Sabbath was much more Than mere relaxation from labor. It is a sign and symbol of man's higher destiny So the Sabbath provided a model for higher progress free Saturdays were simply one step forward Because it represented the importance of time for tradition family spiritual exercise and the development of higher potentials of human interests. Uh, So, we can get a little bit into the early Protestant advocates of free time. So, we're gonna go into three of them. Uh, One of them is William Ellerly Channing, who was an abolitionist, he was a Unitarian, uh, sort of one of the original sort of progressive Christian voices in American history he he's a, he's a fairly famous character um, then you have Samuel Hopkins as well as John Jonathan Edwards so we're going to get a little bit into into I guess William Ellerly Channing first so the 10-hour day which was a great reduction from the you know sometimes 18 hours people were working Represented the transition from the kingdom of God in America to the secular American dream of higher progress And he reasoned that spiritual and economic development advanced together the one supported by the other He was concerned about the increase in leisure could bring about the ends of the deity But also conviviality and community One great end of the deity is that he may give room to benevolent exertions of his children Happiness flows from the benevolent reciprocation the good heart therefore will rejoice in the happiness Which has produced let the soul behold a kingdom of endless and increased glory and let it be Invited to press forward to this kingdom and its benevolence will give it vigor to pursue the prize Channing also employed the Sabbath as a symbolic form to write and speak about freedom and progress toward a higher life The traditional Sabbath had humanized society for thousands of years, freeing people for one day and seven. Visions of the eternal Sabbath might thus guide the future, and the Sabbath may be clothed in a new interest and a new sanctity. It may give a new impulse to the nation's soul. So, again, this is... Also, the the Reformationists and the Protestants believed that leisure wasn't just something you can Just veg out because idleness uh, Is seen as a sin idleness is one of the great pitfalls Held view by the fashionable few that idleness is a privilege and work a disgrace is among the deadliest errors said said Channing uh, so he hammered this point home in his lecture on the elevation of laboring classes, attacking the notion that release from labor was the occasion for idleness. So he said, no toil is so burdensome as the rest of him who has nothing to task and quicken his powers. So part of free time was was in pursuit of like uh, an actualization of becoming a sort of uh selflessness and marx talks about this in the grunge as well uh so the struggle with necessity that defines natural authentic work discipline the body and soul it built skills it strengthened the will preparing both manual and mental workers for the freedom that resulted from the diminishing of labor humans were blessed with this kind of like work school situation And that's something he wanted to kind of continue. And I think trades are going to be increasingly important as we're, as new technologies and new things emerge, we're going to need the skills to kind of like operate them and also find ways to better ourselves along with the freedom that these technologies can potentially grant. Uh, and, And so I think there's a really great parallel between that and what we're seeing today. Another important thing to note is the the term for the kingdom of God on earth is uh, the post-millennial. So it would be a, a these are all post-millennial accounts. Uh, and to, to further that, uh, I'll get into Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards, a history of work of redemption contained one of the first and finest post-millennial accounts of the kingdom of God to appear in America. Edwards explored the theoretical ground, struggling with the new questions of freedom and progress by using the symbolic form of the kingdom, providing insights and sounding themes that guide theologians and secular writers for a really long time. Um, So, basically, he was attempting to break with the Enlightenment and traditional Puritan focuses on life after death. And again, this is a the post-millennial, uh, post-millennial sentiment or quality. Um, and he's kind of, it's like, it's kind of interesting because right now I feel like we need a, a kind of substitute or an ersatz terminology to talk about a kind of, not a utopia, but something to look forward to you know because everything is just so gloom and doom people are so bummed out I you know I believe in the earth is an egg it's a it's cornucopia earth you know first off like water is infinite oil is infinite and regenerative uh, I believe in abiotic oil um, they don't want to tell you this because, there's a concerted effort amongst these capitalist enterprises to keep uh, the illusion of scarcity amongst some of our basically like most infinite resources. And um, I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of insane that we're doing this right now, not us, but. Uh, that we still have to play these games. So, it um, is probable that the world shall be more like heaven in the millennium in this respect. That contemplation and spiritual employments and those things that more directly concern the mind and religion will be more the saint's ordinary business than now there will be so many contrivances and inventions to facilitate and expedite their necessary secular business that they will have more time for more noble exercise. And the whole earth may be as one community, one body in Christ. Now, that sounds like a little hokey, utopian, woo-woo, new agey. So, um, I you know, I, again, it's, it's important to note that a lot of these kind of like... Early post millennial speculations. Every you know, like they don't. History has kind of overcome a lot of these opinions, but I think that there's some there's a kind of essential enlightenment quality that we can further and progress, knowing what we now know, um, seeing the kind of mistakes of of many of these uh, utopian projects. And he also said that a man should be so much at liberty that he can pursue his main end without distraction. So that's really important. Um, The main end without distraction, you know, we're inundated with extractions. I mean, we have people coming up with fucking internet lore for themselves under the guise of autofiction to bury us in the memories of our own experiences and histories and just you know, pile that shit on the twenty thousand exabytes of data that exists in the world. Um, I think that's pretty cruel in a lot of ways, and it's so important to to remember your own kind of history. You know, to remember things that happened to you, even though memory is obviously you know it's a flawed faculty. It doesn't doesn't actually. It's not a one to one representation of what happened. It, there's really no way to qualify that as, as it is rather than various accounts. Socially people can go through and be like, well, I was there. I can tell you that happened, but it's, it's difficult to gauge. But, but anyways, uh, you know, I think that's really sort of, sort of interesting. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about this idea of world building. There's a really beautiful interview with, uh, Vinnie Riley of the Derudi column and it's the first interview he's granted in 10 years and I really sort of want to go through this as well describes you know to me the de Rudy column sound like a world free from pain they sound like a world very much of like this kind of alien desert island it's very tropical which is why you know some of their early 90s stuff um especially ask the time which i think is a very appropriate title for for the album, has found itself on like Ibizan, Balearic, chill-out mixes and shit. You know, I, I know that uh, Sketch for Summer has been on, a, on quite a few of those mixes, uh, which I'm a big fan of, but he spoke a lot in this interview, and I've read a little bit about this before, um, but you know, he, he struggled with PTSD his entire life. Uh, when he was 16, his father died, which is why he's so thin. Uh, he's, he's had a hard time eating, uh, his whole life. Um, and so I think it's, you know, some, one of the things he talks about is how his, when his father died at age 16, uh, And his family life deteriorated. He ended up living up on the streets where he got involved in a world of violence and gangs. In one gunfight, a friend was shot and died in his lap. Tired of his desperate life, Riley says he deliberately antagonized some Moss Side gangsters in the hope that they would kill him. Instead, he got a warning shot by the side of his head, which temporarily deafened him. I don't know I I didn't know I was depressed I hadn't been diagnosed then he said Then he goes on to to say Speaking of his manager, Bruce Mitchell, uh, who also played drums for him since 1981, he's kind of been his caretaker. Uh, you can see him in the, the live footage, uh, Friends from Brussels and, and Sketch for Summer. You know, he's kind of this older guy. He's 83 years old now. Uh, but, he, but he also, to quote him, he goes, when I met Bruce, I was about to kill myself. It was the third time I tried it. He says that a faulty trigger on his gun was all that stopped him. Bruce took me into his home. My depression dissipated because of a very precious little girl, Mitchell's young daughter. Suddenly, you're focused on her and not going inwards into your own thoughts. That kept me going. It literally saved my life. I dismantled my gun and threw it in the mercy. Uh, Riley doesn't wish to dwell on this anguished period all that stuff is in the past he says i've been through 13 psychiatrists to oversee my recovery from mental illness so enough of that um but when i think about his music you can really sort of feel like the the pain and the struggle and you can see that it's it's he's trying to liberate himself from that pain i think that's that's kind of a, one of the higher ideals of art and something that we've we've lost um Here's there's a pretty interesting quote. Uh, one of my mutuals. It's a Emil Cioran quote. He, um, as art sinks into paralysis, artists multiply. This anomaly ceases to be one if we realize that art, on its way to exhaustion has both become impossible and easy. And I think this is also something that is is very sort of prescient. You know, we, we talk a lot about this whole notion of, you know, the the reactionary Dime Square avant-garde or something like that. And you know, we can really trace this back to to Warhol and Beaugerard has a lot of good, uh, interesting things to say on on the Warholian in turn in his uh, the conspiracy of art, which is basically he wanted a world where everybody acted the same. The human condition, the human subject as something that was uniform, which, you know, you take from the name of the factory, for example. Uh, so he was he was sort of seeking like a one, way of doing things a, a a singular quality free of any individual quality so endless reproduction of images which i think that has to do with some of his like sus papacy shit <laughs> but uh I, I i can see it also so this kind of erased the distinction between quality of art and the quality of images themselves and so we no longer have a criteria to evaluate quality now what does that mean in a in a in modernity you know georg lukash said that one of the hallmarks of modernism which is why he was so anti-modernism is that it absolves the individual from the struggles in the world now we can see that some of the beauty uh within Vinnie Riley's music or something like that really comes from his struggles, really comes from things that were deeply personal and also a a kind of heavenly escape from those struggles. So the issue is, is that it incurs a kind of cost that is not financially incentivized or amenable. You know, people don't want to see that capital doesn't want to see that so again one of the things we have to drive home is we need to find alternative spaces saloons night saloons things that are not completely captured and and they also have to be physical which is why a lot of this internet shit is just completely fucking uninteresting and they're beating these dead horses like it's nobody's business and you have these venture capitalists and they're sitting there And these legacy media institutions with their, like, absolutely useless, uh, vacuous critiques of particular movements and scenes and whatnot. And they're keeping, they're trying to keep you locked into this stuff. Because they don't want, they actually don't want you to find a way out of it. But this is what, this is sort of the task that we have to find. And it's not going to be easy, you know. I mean... But if you have a kind of pain, if there's something inside of you where you want to make something, you want to create a special kind of world, I I think we should all encourage that within each other. Okay, so moving on to Samuel Hopkins. So Samuel Hopkins was a close friend of Jonathan Edwards and a disciple uh who presented an even stronger case for liberty's role in the post-millennial kingdom. So so we're seeing a kind of like uh a a real sort of like trend here, which I think is is pretty cool. Um but but all in all like we can kind of see like the roots of where free time came from it was it was the kingdom of god in america and to quote samuel hopkins in the days of the millennium there will be a fullness and plenty of all the necessaries and conveniences of life to render all much more easy and comfortable in their worldly circumstances and enjoyments and with much less labor and toil it will not be then necessary for any men or woman to spend all or the greatest part of their time in labor in order to procure a living and enjoy all the comforts and desirable conveniences of life it will not be necessary for each one to labor more than two or three hours in a day and the rest of their time they will be disposed to spend in reading and conversation to improve their minds and make progress in knowledge specifically in the knowledge of divinity and in studying the scriptures and in private social and public worship and attending on public instruction in business, more entertaining and important. So I think that's enough for this section. Um, I also kind of want to get into, uh, we can, we can, I think I'm going to do this a bit down the line, but, uh, just as a counter argument, we've got, Herbert Hovenkamp, who was a big antitrust guy, uh, wrote a book called Science and Religion in America, which uh, makes a kind of counter-argument that science was increasingly winning out over public opinion versus the kind of like, even the, the Christian rationalist movement that it advocated for this free time. It was actually over, it was overcoming this movement to where the public perception of what these people stood for could no longer hold. Uh, I actually don't believe that to be true in doing my research here. I think it's a lot more complicated than that, and we're gonna we're gonna try to get into that as well. Yeah, so another thing that I think is interesting is this new stuff about the UFO disclosure. Uh, you have people like Leslie Keene, who are incredibly suspect you have a lot of like esalen institute new agey you know first uh earth battalion adjacent stuff in the media going on uh you have a lot of people who are it's just fucking hilarious that have been pushing for basically like just p- pure government lies you know now we're supposed to uh Hear about disclosure. I actually got an inside scoop into uh, Very secret source that the disclosure is In fact kind of real but not in the ways that they're telling us uh, There has been contact made but they're obscuring it and they're releasing a sort of like alternative timeline and You know, ufology is kind of becoming the new religion. And, you know, there's a really cool book that I I just read uh, by, I was talking about him earlier, Hoover uh, Hovenkamp, Science and Religion in America in 1800 to 1860. And, like, right before the epilogue, he talks about, um, he gets into this passage right here. The Unitarian Controversy was a textbook issue. Even most evangelicals were not the biblical literalists they had been in the first part of the century. Calvinism died in 1800 at Harvard. That is not true. Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff about this book uh, that you can just kind of discount. I really prefer Benjamin Klein Honeycutt's uh, account of the 19th century of America. I think it's much more accurate. But this is this is an interesting counterfactual. Uh, he goes, Calvinism died in 1800 at Harvard. Well, you know, look at first reform by Paul Schrader. Those communities, they still exist. Uh, and it was buried with Nathaniel Taylor at Yale. It survived only at reactionary Princeton. N- you know, the head of Princeton was actually sort of an adamant laborist yeah sure he was a conservative and you know an early mainline protestant but he actually had invested a lot of time and effort into the higher pursuits of progress so that's not exactly true uh and the small circle of colleges that Princeton provided with faculty, but only after on the Origin of Species were the battle lines clearly redrawn. The new questions were much more empirical, much less concerned with the niceties of American Calvinism niceties. Uh, I, I I don't know I, I don't know who describes Calvinism with like through the lens of like niceties, but okay. As uh, much more involved with what was really on the minds of scholars, science. So this is an interesting book, but I think that there's a lot of uh, disinformation here. And, you know, it's coming from an antitrust guy. Personally, I'm a bit more pro-trust these days. Uh, and, you know, to kind of like paraphrase Jehu and uh, stuff like that, um, I think. Uh... So monopolies are more efficient at reducing the amount of superfluous labor time in conditions where the rate of profit is constantly really close to from being negative. So this is dangerous for the state, uh, which is why the state doesn't want them. So it, it, it kind of makes sense why it, it's backward logic, but, you know, the trust is actually okay. So what is Antitrust. it's basically legislation preventing or controlling trusts or other monopolies with the intention of promoting competition of business. So it's trust busting, you know, it's, it's basic, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt sort of progressive era economics, same with FDR. But like, what is the state's role in all of this? And I think that it's a little bit more nebulous and suspicious than, than people are letting on. So, so Channing, uh, Edwards and Hopkins, uh, They struggled with freedom's Adelik question. What activities are worthy of the kingdom, the Sabbath, heaven, and Eden? What actions are worthwhile in and of themselves? He also began to outline specifics. Uh, Prominent were sort of everyday forms of conviviality, ordinary conversation, stories, uh, political discourse, which I highly disagree with now because it's been completely colonized by this sort of in-group, out-group, hive-mind shit, Uh, were the very stuff of the kingdom and showed the way to human progress. Now, discourse, I think, has been fully uh, weaponized in a way that does not entail freedom. It's, It's very difficult because it it denies actually a, a very different set of rights it de- denies the right to silence and that i think we have to sort of reexamine that a little bit but what who i really want to talk about is walt whitman walt whitman is i think kind of needs no introduction So, Walt Whitman was an American poet, and he was an essay and a journalist. He's probably the most influential uh, poet in American history. You know, he was a proponent of transcendentalism and a kind of ontological realism, and uh, probably one of the foremost innovators of, of the free verse, And um, his most famous work is Leaves of Grass, but what I'm probably going to talk most about is Democratic Vistas. Uh, You know, he also came from Quaker parents, uh, although he did not sort of subscribe to the mainline Protestant or Unitarian kind of faith, even though he was... Very pro religion. Uh, he sort of called himself a deist more than anything. Um,. In 1855, in his preface to Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman's democratic vision was clear, bold, and optimistic, not yet clouded by events in democracy's rude growths. Uh, but after the Civil War and with the publication of Democratic Vistas, he had become painfully aware of freedom's failures, rampant hypocrisy in literature, political corruption, and business frauds, and uh, social posturings and overreachings, amongst others, most troubling was the widespread failure of belief. To quote Walt Whitman, never was there perhaps more hollowness at heart than at present, and here in the United States. Genuine belief seems to have left us. The underlying principles of the states are not honestly believed in, nor is humanity itself believed in. The spectacle is appalling. We live in an atmosphere of hypocrisy throughout. The men believe not in the women, nor the women in the men. I think... (laughs) Uh, a lot of people assume that, you know, today it's like, you know, there's all these memes like, oh, you know, like America is fallen, you know, d- democracy is worthless. We need to reinstantiate re-inst- like a monarchy and all this stuff. It's like, this stuff has been going on for, for quite some time. And it's not to say that democracy has failed per se. It's say, it, I think it's more that we have to reach a kind of uh, a new horizon in what, uh, The people and the democratic process can do rather than the constricted one. But he had been noting this way back in the 19th century. So, and one of the reasons why is that people had kind of become blackpilled on the lack of progress towards democracy's higher and better promises that originally animated his early works in Leaves of Grass. So... The nation had become over-concerned with national power and empire, materialistic development, and popular intellectuality. I think popular intellectuality is uh, a, a big one because you see people and they're just kind of hedging their bets right now uh, on which side holds the power. And a lot of people who are professed intellectuals who are trying to seek truth are sort of locked and in, in ghettoized in I think these, you know, they become kind of like paid propagandists for whichever side is winning at the moment. You know, you saw a lot of that with like the DSA people and the Bernie Sanders movement and how a lot of those people actually switched and became, I think, troublingly uh, dogmatic Eurocentric rightists who sort of Which escapes the kind of like original American values of higher progress itself Uh, there's a kind of like red coat Tory flavor to it that I think is incredibly psyoped And, um, you know, it's interesting all this stuff about like teal bucks and whatnot Uh, that was kind of untrue, but he did have paid agents I found out through sources sort of infiltrating these spheres to kind of rile people up and change their perception, I think, through a kind of like a coercive mob enforced mentality of like, actually, you, you need to believe this or you're in the out group. It wasn't so much like, you know, throwing around like teal bucks or whatever and like giving people tons of money and like paying off podcasters. But there was a good amount of mimetic research involved, and you can actually find this. this is all public domain. So I think uh, what we're seeing is, to, to quote Whitman, he also goes, "I say that our new world democracy, however great a success in uplifting the masses out of their sloths in materialistic development products, is so far, and almost complete failure in its social aspects. Okay, that sounds pretty familiar to what's going on now. And uh, in really grand religious, moral, literary, and aesthetic results, in vain do we march with unprecedented strides to empire. It is as if we were somehow being endowed with a vast and more and more thoroughly appointed body, and then left with little or no soul. So... uh, Walt Whitman was actually a proponent of technology. Uh, He was kind of a a neo-Leibnizian in the fact that he saw technology and these sort of algorithmic processes as as things that could liberate humanity. Now, I think we're we're starting to see a, a big problem in that the way we data mine and farm, it's become sort of like you know, everyone goes, oh, you know, this is just a simulation. Everything's a simulation. Well, I think that's Cope because in a certain sense, these have like real sort of manifesting ontological and psychological effects on people. And they do determine a kind of like material grasp that we are seeing now. Um, so, So he expressed like... To speak to generations to come also, you know, he was he was actually speak he in a lot of Walt Mittman's work He wasn't just speaking for the time, which is why I feel like he holds up so incredibly well His whole thing was that he was really confident that his words and his vision would speak to people beyond his contemporaries and that we would understand and embrace uh, a renewed belief and I think belief is a kind of like tying line throughout all of Whitman's work. So, he, he put the progress of freedom in three stages. With democratic vistas, he attempted to explain more fully than he had before how one liberation encouraged the next and how civilization advances in stages, each stage founding the higher and freer level. So, But he also believed that United States was leading the way, continuing to spread basic political rights to disenfranchised, exploited, and enslaved groups. Um, and so... To talk about the these spiritual possibilities that we are kind of responsible for uh, in our pursuit of higher progress, I think we have to split the concept of the United States and the empire with that of America, with that of a kind of unique, fifth-dimensional, bizarre, uh, you know, kind of civilizations, if, if, if you will. And he goes, the world evidently supposes, and we have evidently supposed so too, that the states are merely to achieve the equal franchise and elective government to inaugurate the respectability of labor and become a nation of practical observ- observatives, law-abiding, orderly, and well-off. Yet those are indeed parts of the task of America, but they not only do not exhaust the progressive conception, but rather arise, teeming with it as the mediums of deeper, higher progress. And this is a real good one. Daughter of a physical revolution, mother of the true revolutions, which are of the interior life and of the arts. For so long as the spirit is not changed, any change of appearance is of no avail. So Whitman thought that creativity and the arts were a kind of... Greater, higher revolution that could free people than, say, something like violent, even though he was kind of, you know, problematically, some could say, defensive of the American empire and the nation. He was a kind of uh, Jeffersonian uh, Democrat liberal, but he was also kind of a nationalist, too. And, but I, I wouldn't say nationalist, I would say he's correctly patriotic. In a lot of his pursuits, because he really didn't want exploitation of anybody. Um, so Whitman's higher progress was less naively optimistic, uncritical meta narrative than a project. So he wasn't like this is kind of why I, I I sort of side with Whitman over somebody like Marx and Whitman was like you know he was deeply anti socialist as well. So that's another thing uh, because he had a vision. Uh, contingent on the belief of a commitment to free inner life. And inner life means that you can't trample upon the destiny of the individual. Uh, So belief and the inner life sort of animate Whitman's vision of progress. So in democratic vistas whitman reaffirmed the underlying principles of the states the re- american republic would flower in freedom in occasions for song poetry play festival celebration and camaraderie it is built on two grand stages of preparation strata and he says for the new world indeed after two grand straight stages of preparation strata I perceive that now a third stage being ready for, and without which the other two were useless, with unmistakable signs appears. The first stage was the planning and putting on record the political foundation rights of immense masses of people, indeed all the people, in the organization of a Republican government this is the american program not for classes but for universal man the second stage relates to material prosperity wealth produce labor saving machines big one right there iron cotton local state and continental railways Uh, Labor-saving machines, we can think of that. We can imagine that right now through a process of of home hobby shopping with mass 3D printers, being able to print everything from defunct things so that we can refurbish our old goods that are kind of just languishing. Uh, Although they were built to last, they had been replaced because the supply chains, there's lobby for the supply chains that basically say... You can't produce this because if in, because if it's producible, then the owner actually has ownership over their goods. Now, the problem with a commodity is it doesn't entail ownership because of planned obsolescence. You're a rentier of your microwave, of your fucking Samsung television, of all these other things. So... This is a big problem when people say, I think, especially when libertarians or people who are sort of pro-capitalism or pro-corporation, they say, well, at least you get to own your stuff. It's like you actually don't because, you you know, your iPhone 9 is like two updates away from being obsoleted away. And, you know, that's, that's inherent, that's latent in most technology. But if you want actual technological process, you want something that lasts a little bit longer than like three or four years. Cause my fucking Samsung TV hardly works anymore. And it's like only a few years old. So, but he also believed in abundance, a cornucopia mindset, material prosperity as he did with political freedoms. So... Whitman had he had few objections to wealth, though. Uh, assuming so, he wasn't necessarily uh, equality in a kind of like Marxist horizontalist sense. Although I do think Marx gets a little bit of a bad rap because in the Grundrisse and uh, and critique of the Gotha program, uh, he goes on to basically explain that uh, true equality is like a utopian fantasy. And what you really want is a progressive meritocracy so the people who have more than others, they really deserved it. Um, and I think that's kind of a problem that we're seeing today, Is and this is a widening problem, is that the dumbest fucking swagless people, you know, these kind of like custodians of these platforms like Mark Andreessen or whatever, you know, with their like, EACC bullshit are kind of like co-opting uh, folk internet culture to describe or sanitize it for like a certain class of of like capitalists or strivers or whatever and so I think that becomes an issue as well and so uh Ken S- Samil he observed about Whitman in his kind of uh Anti-so or non-socialism. He says, far from being a proto-socialist, Whitman praised the true galvanization hold of liberalism in the United States. And in my opinion, I think liberalism will win. I think it already has. I think it's only a matter of time before closed countries start adopting more liberalist uh, ideas, and not in this globalist, shitty globalist way. Because I think that, you know, the whole fucking like uh, liberal uh, world order, which is, you know, attempting to kind of like astroturf these things through, uh, through, through data language and these uh, set processes that are being put into the infosphere. Because I think we really have to make a, a distinction here between the kind of like globalist liberalism And also something of a kind of Whitman liberalism that is, I think, inherent in the creativity and the freedom of the United States of America. Uh, And he goes, so, um, which he described a more universal ownership of property, general homestead, general comfort, a vast intertwining reticulation of wealth. While he might decry the yawning gulf that was the labor question, Whitman still hailed with joy the business materialism of the current age. If it could only be spiritualized, all would be well. So what he was attempting to do is he was attempting to spiritualize technological progress. And this, I think, is um, in my criticism of, of Herbert Hovenkamp's Science and Religion in America... It's, it's not so much the Protestant or the American Christian values that created what is nominally understood as the Protestant work ethic. It was the de-spiritualization of Protestantism that was actually uh, astroturfed in by the secularized labor movements of the quote-unquote American left that were just a complete fucking state fabrication, worked hand in hand with the state to manufacture these imperialist wars. So the American left has always been this way. It's always been fake. It's always been evil. (laughs) I don't want to say evil because Unless you're talking about in, like, the Hannah Arendt way of, like, the banality of evil and that they're, they're like, complicit without being, like, true agents or whatever, you know? They're not, like, fucking, you know, Soviet spies or or spies for, like, fucking, like, you know, the national security state, per se. But they manufacture a kind of belief on the behalf of these uh, coercive structures and entities. So he he talks about nathaniel hawthorne's traveler in the celestial railroad so he here's a poem Alons, we must not stop here however sweet these laid up shores however convenient this dwelling we cannot remain here so progress and becoming which gets a little bit delusional in a in a in a sense as well um i think being is a much less important question than than the progress of becoming and i think a belief in progress is really sort of tantamount to how we define our leisure how we define our work um you know i talk about this a lot one of the best interviews i did was with rabbit uh the founder of halcyon veil vale, because he said that a big part of success is defining your own success And i think our ability to define our own success outside of these constrictions of of society is so important to how we structure time and how we claim and own time more than any kind of state socialism or anything else i think that's a very important component to freedom uh but you know higher progress is not something that's inevitable uh if it's deficient in the belief Or affection that people should settle for lesser things like we can't settle, which is why we need to spiritualize these things We you know part of art and part of the nano business and fin punk is it's an attempt to aestheticize your work In a beautiful way like I think I just went to Barb's barbecue, which is an all-woman owned a barbecue place by the head pit master who's a young girl named, named Chuck. Young woman per se. I don't want to say young girl. Um, but they've got like this really cool, artful approach. And the barbecue is the best I've ever had. And this to me is like the true fin punk embodiment of the Whitman American spirit. And I don't care if people say, oh, it's woke that they say they're this and that. It's like, so fucking what? You know, you have to get over this whole woke crybaby. Like, if it's woke, it's bad. It's like, really? I mean, most people are sick of it. So I'm, I don't want to be preaching to the choir here. Uh, I know most of my listeners are are pretty over any kind of like culture, not my listeners, but you know, people I, I share, I like to like share in my, I don't know, share ideas with and art with, and you know, we're all sort of sharing with each other, you know, people share things with me and that creates hopefully someday a kind of community that can embody the values of, of higher progress or, um, And I really like what uh, inherent they Ulysses says, I guess goes by Emily now. Um, She goes, I I really like this concept of woke brutalism too. (laughs) That true wokeness has never been tried. And maybe this is the third uh, and final stage of of, uh, the higher progress that Whitman outlined in the Democratic Vistas. And Whitman talks about the true poet as Somebody who leads the way not like a politician or a world leader, but the the true poet the introspective spirit that uh, Can take people beyond and spiritualize every process within their lives and and so uh, Whitman He presented an open road in which individuals might come to fully into their own less and less encumbered by political oppression social custom and demands of the job and economy each person would have an equal chance to more fully engage his or her humanity delighting in nature the body camaraderie ship and struggling with life's tragedies and challenges of the spirit and of the day so struggling with love heartbreak romance like these are all painful things that we have to go through to not become palliative spiritualist ro- uh, spiritualist robots so it's not to say you know <coughs> i had um the transhuman uh, the head of the transhumanist society on the show and you know it's not to say that we rid the world of pain in pursuit of something like weird new age, like hedonic pleasure, uh, that would sort of entail a necropolis where we're all kind of dead inside. So we have to go through these struggles. Like struggle is good. Pain is good. Feeling heartbreak, you know, lamentation, yearning. These are all positive things in Whitman's view that we have to run towards in our attempt to actualize progress. So, um, We have to, so he basically also says, like, so here's our Whitman's activities of freedom. Like, what is Whitman, like, what can we actually do? Because this is really important, rather than just the history of free time and freedom. Uh, Whitman, for him, the main activity of freedom is tranquility. Offering first as Hegel the purest free act of being for itself self-awareness Self-consciousness if we're conscious of our desires if we're in tap with those things Which a lot of exploited workers don't have the time because they just veg out they go to the goon cave They jerk off to porn no judgment on them uh, It's it's really not their fault and you have to empathize with that position and see it for what it is Uh, the consciousness of consciousness awareness of the freedom of awareness astounds and delights the soul Offering it infinite employment. Now. That's really interesting infinite employment I think that's that's like the nano business grind set right there. Um And so This is all really exciting stuff to me and and to quote him, uh, In democratic business I exist as I am that is enough one world is aware and by far the largest to me And that is myself. I dote on myself. There is that lot of me and also luscious and there he goes with like, you know the homoerotic uh, Language that got that was deemed as very controversial at the time and there's a lot of speculation in a whitman Sexuality was he gay was he asexual? He's kind of like I don't know, maybe like Morrissey or something like that. Uh, but he also, so Whitman used familiar experiences of daily life to represent the reunions that democracy was making available to all. Thus he celebrates and sings, touches, and plays. So celebration is, is a main component to him as well as it was in, uh, uh, Bakhtin's Rabelais and His World when he goes into which is a, a early soviet not soviet um it was a early sort of a russian communist text about uh Rabelais and carnivals and jubilees how there used to be celebrations in the medieval times that actually informed the, the commune, the, the communal life. Now, obviously we look at stuff like the Soviet Union. It was a very joyless, uh, hateful of joy society, uh, which I think is a, you know a big problem with, you know, our historical what we look to see within the Soviet Union and a lot of criticisms of it. I'm not saying, you know it's all bad or it's all good. But that's something that I you hear a lot about, even though um, the the collective farms actually had a bit of that. So we can't say it was all crushed, you know. It, it that's just that, that may be one perception of it. So celebrations are activities of joyful awareness and appreciation of the self, the world, and others, of activities valuable in and for themselves rather than for some need that is meets a utilitarian function or they serve so a celebration has to be decoupled from utilitarianism this is you know in the tlingit tradition of the potlatch or something like that you know chiefs burning their possessions to flex on their haters G- george Bataille talked a lot about this uh in an ex- expenditure economy and celebration's a tale a kind of expenditure you know when a Saint-Cloud rapper flexes and you know blows a bunch of money i think that's important i think that's pretty cool we should be doing things um the only issue with the soundcloud rapper and this is something i've come to realize that i was maybe a little less critical of before is that they are doing it to gain a sort of access or but it's always been in status the the twinga chiefs who did it was for status it was to flex you know it was like an original fuck you Watch me burn all my shit and give it all away because I can just get this shit back again Um, So I do think that is uh, Important and for but here's a big one for Whitman and I think this goes into cartoon Formalism is higher progress being something that's tactile It's it's a kind of the touch being the most fundamental of the senses. And I think in art, when we're seeing stuff like AI, like AI should liberate us so that we can pursue craft. And this is something that the arts and crafts movement in England in the 1800s, late 1800s, tried to approximate the use of machines to give people the time to learn tactile craft-based uh, things like we should get into classicism, Cla- like classical skills are very, very important in our reach and our understanding of the world and the world around us, um, and poetry as a kind of tangibility, I think, as well. Uh, Bayang Chul Han says that poetry is objecthood because it exists purely as it is We see this uh, in the in the art of Kandinsky as well Which Kojevro marked upon is that it is objective because it is non-representational Thus granting it objecthood because it is not didactic and not discursive so, uh, so Here is another thing when it comes to touch On whitman divine am i inside and out and i make holy whatever i touch or am touched from the scent of these armpits is aroma finer than prayer i merely steer press feel with my fingers and am happy to touch my person to someone else's is about as much as i can stand is this then a touch quivering me to a new identity Flames and ether making a rush for my veins. I love his use of ether here. And it's very similar to the Holderlin conception of ether, which is like, you know, this ineffable thing that goes beyond mimesis. It goes beyond trends. It's an inner subject. To, it's it's a, even beyond the inner subjective. It is, it is purely cosmic, transcendental and imminence at the same time it is the locus of those two things and i think that is incredibly beautiful we are ether maxing now like this is the moment of pure ether and becoming and i think that is just incredibly beautiful so um and he also it also notes the inner subjective transformative kinds of experiences which i think the book doesn't make the connection to the line flames and ether making a rush for my veins it doesn't make an explicit connection of that but this is how i think it should uh, be interpreted so he recognized play as an arena of freedom in which consciousness reimmersed with the material world, transforming bits of it into playthings and in playgrounds and others into playmates. Play also usually exhibits what Eugene Fink called in this I'm going to quote the book here, he calls it the color of joy, the properties of exuberance. Uh, transitoriness for the time being, willing belief, and part of belief entails faith, and faith entails a kind of becoming against stagnation, uh, which were all virtues that Whitman associates with higher progress. Okay, moving on. So, also for Whitman, he speaks about. The word transfigured by consciousness and love, which is poetry. Um, I spoke a little bit about poetry uh, just now. Um, The poet's new creation exemplifies the erotic rejoinings Whitman envisioned. So um, for Whitman, he basically says that the poet uses words to infuse meaning, beauty, pleasure and joy into ordinary objects and human associations opening up new worlds of shared meaning this is why fin punk and neologisms and people are like why are you talking about like barbecue non-philosophy and all this stuff it's it, it, I tr- i wanted to i want to share in something of this spirit you know maybe i don't succeed maybe we're just being stupid but this is what i'm basically interested in, the inner subjective spaces uh like play which create realities and promote new activities of Adhesiveness, you know, we could all suck down some stubs together for example So, uh The poet of democracy would not simply refocus the traditional art from the heroic topics of the feudal past to democratic themes uh, And this is like ultimate ultimate this is like the distinction between a kind of like American Americana poetry and a eurocentric feudal model uh that's beholden to the literary cast uh blessed with genius and some rare insight that I think you see a little bit on the East Coast you see latencies of this like cult of genius with uh you know everyone sort of being this like auto fiction writer and it's it's very sort of myopic and it's very its it, It turns very inward and and there's a bit of an aristocratic tendency there that as somebody who loves america i find it a little bit mm, elitist or something like that so the so he's trying to turn away from the european feudal model of literary uh prestige uh blessed with like gifts and And he basically says that the poet points beyond him or herself and his or her words to an egalitarian literature and democratic culture, arenas in which equality was not so much a topic to be written about as it was a project to be realized in practice. This is ultra, ultra important in my opinion. Uh, The realization of poetry, not as a caste system, not as some sort of like, high priest of culture but as something that is beholden and a product of the democratic process itself so i think ultimately super super uh prescient stuff um so whitman did not imagine himself to be the first in a lineage of american aristocrats of literature Indeed, such a notion remained foreign in the United States until academics devised the golden day of American literature trope in the 1920s. Now, the 1920s was a a big turning point in America in terms of labor, in terms of our culture. Uh, It was turning from the American dream, the vistas of that dream and the realm of freedom into a kind of uh, reversal role And a revisionist feudalism that it sought to escape and this is what we're trying to escape today Um, So Whitman presented a thoroughgoing critique of the literature of feudalism and its forms themes and deference to literary genius departing from the European model Whitman understood his Genius simply as a place at the apex of a democratic period that would spread the free use of language to ever more people and finally to all. So, in order to re... and this is what Frank Lloyd Wright, the ar- gr- obviously one of the greatest architects who ever lived. It's it's not even a debate in my op- well, if it's my opinion, I guess it is. But for Frank Lloyd Wright, he spoke about the ne- the ne- the necessities that the free have to secure in freeing others. And I think that is just absolutely beautiful. I think it's one of the most beautiful, uh, notions that anybody can have. So, um, so basically to get back into this, uh, But he also says that not everyone would be a poet per se. Instead, a legion of poet priests might spring up throughout the nation to take over from pioneers like Whitman. So uh, using the gray detail of discourse with American myths, stories, legends, conversations that flowed Uh, locally as the subjects of their poetry therefore encouraging validating and promoting the democratic creative use of everyday language and sign so poetry isn't just a sort of vocation right like it's it's not you're not just a poet because you're a poet you can act poetically in your gestures as a mechanic as a you know, somebody who does work in, in a non, quote unquote, traditionally artistic field, uh, whether you're in food service, you know, there's a way to live and in, in, in embody this uh, in, in an important way, regardless of who you are and what you do. So he basically called this freedom's final frontier that everyday discourse might become like poetry, autoletic, uh, a communicative action. And, you know, there's a lot of debates about Twitter and schizo posting and whether it rivals the best of like high modernist poetry. Um, I think some of the more outlandish uh, ways of posting do indeed have a poetic form i think they they definitely can um does it miss the mark yeah but i mean that's to be expected most of it will um do they form adhesive communities now this is the problem with the internet and i don't want to say this is a sim we're you know merely like sort of like simulating it's just all simulation theory and uh you know people Online can't create meaning and identity together because I don't think that's true either Um, And so to quote Whitman again, I should certainly insist on a radical change of category I should demand a program of culture drawn out not for a single class alone or for the parlors of lecture rooms but with an eye to practical life the West the working men the facts of farms and jack planes and engineers and of the broad range of the women also of the middle and working strata and with reference to the perfect equality of women and to a grand and powerful motherhood I should demand of this program or theory a scope generous enough to include the widest human area it must have for its special meaning the formation of a typical personality or character Eligible to the uses of the high average of men and not restricted by conditions ineligible to the masses very important Conditions ineligible to the masses. This is for everyone to enjoy. It's it's post elitist The best culture will always be that of the manly and courageous instincts and Loving perceptions and of self-respect aiming to form over this continent an idiosync An idiocracy of universalism, which true child of America will bring joy to its mother, returning her in her own spirit, recruiting myriads of offspring, able, natural, perceptive, tolerant, devout believers in her America. And with some definite instinct, why and for what she has arisen most vast, the formidable of historic births, and this now and here with wonderful step journeying through time. You see, uh, time—that's another one. It, it, it entails a kind of journeying, a, a sense of timelessness and atemporality. Um, and and to juxtapose Marx and Hegel, whereas you know Hegel envisioned the end of history as the ad- advent of constitutional democracies, uh, Whitman was a little bit different. He hinted at a more. Uh, Profound but a still unacceptable terminus Uh, just as democracies were outgrowing the heroic political themes and rigid Poetical forms of the feudal past the genius with special gifts the literary genius who made contributions to literature and Historical significance was actually disappearing less and less credible as the democracy of the word spread Uh, so I think that's really sort of important is like this this uh the Warholian, you know one world kind of uh he- hegelianism when it came to the process of crafts and art making that we are that we've sort of like for forgone the conclusion that there is a quality and there is a craft and there is a struggle to be had through creation and actualization and process itself that it was we would just become a Graveyard factory churning out commodities and this was sort of the terminus of art Um, I really I really think that's an incredibly damaging viewpoint Uh, is it correct? It it probably is it, it probably is a correct opinion unfortunately but what, but what I would like to see is a, is a reversal or reclamation of that point um, because I think there are still things that we can do. Uh, so he basically also said that the democratic yield then might be the human being towards whose heroic and spiritual evolution poems and everything directly or indirectly tend old world to new. So there still needs to be a kind of myth or a re-spiritualization here. I think that's a very common theme in Whitman. Uh, So here he says, "'A great poem is no finish to a man or woman, but rather a beginning. Has anyone fancied he could sit at last under some due authority and rest satisfied with explanations and realize and be content and full?' To no such terminus does the greatest poet bring. He brings neither cessation or sheltered fatness and ease. So, oh man, you know, some of this is a bit, is a bit paradoxical. Uh, in terms of like the way he insists that we share in his authentic uh, visions of freedom and democratic culture. So he's kind of like the authority of freedom and this, I could see this as being a bit problematic for some people, um, but I still think it's true if we look at the way history panned out. And he was a Promethean, uh, so and he basically said poetic authority uh Demands that the reader embrace the freedom of higher progress and engage the poet and the world in that freedom. So there's a bit of a—I don't want to say dialectic here—because um, I think it's more instinctual than that. Whitman talks a lot about the instinct, and you know he called it instinctual manliness. Uh, I don't know if that was another homoerotic undertone, but it—it it is. Uh, I think. Ultimately and this I think is Whitman what we can learn the most from him right now is ultimately his desire to demystify poetry So he demystifies poetry insisting rather that poetry is not the business of a special breed of humans Rather at the pinnacle of freedom it is available to all so for him poetry poetic nature must be available to all people Uh, So he offers himself more as like a model or a specimen for the coming legion of poets of democracy who would employ their talents to propagate and sustain the democracy of words. Um, And I think, again, that's ultimately very, very important stuff. And, you know, the American bards, uh, they're supposed to be like marked with their generosity and affection for... encouraging competitors you know as a kind of like way of of gaining trust and he says they shall be cosmos without monopoly or secrecy glad to pass anything to anyone hungry for equals day and night and i think that's beautiful because it's uh post-authorship and in a way that is not you know dogmatically um political and and i think you know, it's collectivist in a sense without denying the freedom of destiny and transformation of the individual. Now, people were also kind of critical of Whitman because they thought he was just too much of an idealist. You know, socialism was gaining a lot of steam at that time. Uh, he had a lot of critics from people who uh were focused mostly on stuff like wage slavery you know marxist socialist laborist stuff like that um, But he also, I mean, he embraced that concept of his own. The main difference between him is that he advocated for the liberation of wage slavery, not through a political system or state socialism, but through technology, through technology itself. So he was a big advocate for the reduction of labor hours, for the 10-hour workday. And so... He also said, you know, in his quoting the uh, in the Daily Eagle, the Nashville strikers were quoted as we are flesh and blood. We need hours of recreation. It is estimated by political economists that five hours per day by each individual would be sufficient to support the human race. Surely we do our share when we labor 10. We have social feeling which must be satisfied. We have minds and they must be improved. We are lovers of our country and we must have time and opportunity to study its interests. You see, that's another thing is a a civilization becomes strengthened when people have the time to gain consciousness of the beauty that surrounds them within their civilization. And that's, that's why there's really no such thing as subcultures. There's only like real, there's cultures and then there's just You know, subculture is just kind of like a branding tool. It's a marketing tool. And then there's the algorithmic affect or the, I don't want to say cybernetic, but there's the cultural pressure, uh, stress and cooperation that goes to informing each culture itself. And so... He basically, you know, he wrote a poem called No Labor-Saving Machine. So he listed labor-saving machines as part of the wealth building up the nation, together with the establishment of hospitals and libraries, libraries, very important, Kant, uh, Leibniz, and performance of deeds of courage. He put better weapons, labor-saving implements in the hands of soldiers returning from the war. Uh, you know, he was a bit of a pro of a warmonger, a liberal warmonger. So, you know, uh, I don't know. He probably would have liked the movie Top Gun a lot because it it's a... You know, it's like people coming from different backgrounds and races and genders, you know, supporting each other, sacrificing each other for the cause of the nation. But, you know, he's also, I think, a bit more generous than that. I also love what he says that in here, um, because he had a lot of correspondence with uh, Henry David Thoreau, who wanted to reverse the Sabbath and make it an opposite thing, where you worked one day and you uh, rested the, the, the other six. Um, and in 1856, he wrote a really famous letter to Ralph Waldo Emerson, where he cautioned We have not come through centuries, caste, heroes, and fables to halt in this land today. Or I think it is to collect the tenfold impetus that any halt is made as nature inexorable, onward, resistless, impassive amid the threats and screams of disputants, so America. Let all defer, let all attend respectfully the leisure of these states, their politics, poems, literature, manners, and their free-handed modes of training their own offspring. Their own comes just matured, certain numerous, and capable enough with egotistical tongues, with sinewed wrists, seizing openly what belongs to them. They resume personality, too long left out of mind. So, I think this is really kind of interesting, where he uh, he laments that works and days were offered us, and we took works. So, this... (laughs) this is actually, he had a sort of criticism that we were turning towards stuff that insulted our soul. And he wrote, uh, dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face in between the lashes of your eyes. The poet shall not spend his time in unneeded work. He shall know that the ground is always ready, plowed and manured. And so, you know, he's looking towards, because obviously, you know, fucking kids with a trust fund, they don't have to worry about this kind of shit. You know, he was envisioning a world where other people who didn't come from, you know, it's kind of the American dream that, We're all born created equally. So we all have the same right uh, to have a level up in terms of that. And, you know, this is something that bums me out about like a lot of of right wing stuff. You know, it's like, sure, you know, equal outcomes, of course. Yeah, you know, people are going to be fucking unequal. That's just some people are fuck ups. I don't know. There's other problems that are less, I don't know, pronounced than that. Even some people are just better at shit. But um, I definitely think uh, he wanted to liberate people. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. Because let us I, I want to bring it to the present a bit. Where when we look at our systems of finance... When we look at stuff like the World Economic Forum, uh, which ultimately produces nothing uh, but subordinating technology to outdated 20th century structures. So it's kind of incredible that we could move beyond all of this stuff, but they're basically just mocking the future. They're abdicating the future, uh, which is why people are so pessimistic about technology, unlike Walt Whitman. Uh, And I think the the techno-pessimism comes from the fact that uh, people don't know how to cope with uh, these technologies at all. So, but we have to put the technologies to work in our favor. There has to be ways of doing that. And one way, very powerful, in my opinion, is three D printing. Not just of weapons, because I think that's important too. Don't get me fucking wrong; I'm a big three D printing gun guy. Uh, but we actually have to, like, in a broader sense, liberate productive forces. And this is where I think Marxism is a twentieth century, twenty first century, futuristic post Marxism comes into play. And so that is sort of the end of the Walt Whitman section. One of the few people who actually made sort of inroads in this domain to secure freedom uh, in a sort of w- in, in a form of infrastructure was Frank Lloyd Wright. And he had this concept called the Broadacre city, which I think is very, very cool. He laid out plans for a city as you know, obviously very famous architect, the most famous in America. I'm, I'm sort of going by like the most famous guys right now, um, which is I think totally fine. Because some of this stuff, like, it's kind of hidden. It's hidden within their personal philosophies. Like, a lot of people know about their works. Like, they know about the Ennis House. They know about Leaves of Grass. But this is, like, this is stuff that's, like, deep exchanges. So Broadacre City was kind of a cool concept because it was basically a city that shuts off. You know, people talk about, like, the 15-minute city or the 50-minute urban area. Uh, This is actually different in that it's a four- to six-hour city that shuts off, and there's a tunnel that goes to the countryside. So the workers who work in these industrial places, and Frank Lloyd Wright uh, said that the cities were vertical and verticality is a kind of like aesthetic oppression they would then take this like tunnel all the way to the countryside where they would live out in these like horizontal beautiful naturalistic environments uh aided by the advances in technological capacity so this i think is super super important stuff uh This is one such plan that never made it out, but I think the underlying philosophy and principles behind it are very applicable today. And so, Daniel Rogers' book, The Work Ethic in Industrial America, from 1850 to 1920 uh, was kind of... Uh, it was a great account of like, the general work attitudes in the United States. So uh, the industrial economy was in part this massive creature of religious faith in the worth of labor itself. So, so, like, so it was kind of like work became secularized and then the faith transmuted to that work. Uh, Herbert Hovenkamp basically has, I think a bad argument on why this happened. He basically says that science had won out and that's why people lost their faith. And he almost says that like, that's a good thing because now we have stuff like antitrust laws, but those don't, especially today, they don't really work because the state is so entrenched in the property rights Of these corporations and monopolies and in upholding them as basic speculative real estate value that they really have no interest in busting the monopolies completely so this has been a a big sort of issue but but there have been sort of like solitary uh, movements towards this new sort of like freedom Uh, and One of them was the arts and crafts movement. Uh, That was sort of one of the most noteworthy responses to work having lost its virtue and people trying to find meaning outside of work. So uh, most critics of industrial monotony came to a far simpler answer. If modern industrial work was soulless, then men should do less of it. Pretty simple solution, I think. By the early 20th century, a sizable number of northern Protestant moralists had begun to argue that it was not in self-discipline that a man's spiritual essence was revealed, but in free, spontaneous activity of play. So this, I think, uh, is super interesting because uh, Harvard's Charles Eliot uh, was one of the sort of main figures of the arts and crafts movement. And, you know... It kind of got to a point where work ethic, especially today, like work ethic is something that's very difficult to support. It's very difficult to say, like, I don't know how many times I look around and and see online, you know, everybody has these like very sort of fragmentary ideologies about things, but very seldomly do I actually see something like, oh, work is so great. It's having a hard work ethic is a good thing, especially in the West. Because it doesn't there's no higher purpose for us within it, so like the secular work ethic uh sort of graduated with the promise of liber of liberation from the marketplace uh in a traditional religious context beyond the virtues of America, and so like. One of Frank Lloyd Wright's answers to that, uh, and he wrote something called "The Art and Craft of the Machine," which I think is beautiful. It gets, you know, there's a lot you could do with three d printing, and i I especially see like uh, the tiny homes movement and hobby shopping as a kind of uh, analog to this. Uh, that was his first attempt to make his vision coherent and what would have called it an organic whole. So this essay um, was an ode to his uncle, uh, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, a Unitarian minister and a leader of welfare work being done in Chicago. Wright was from the Midwest. Uh, he famously lived in these tiny towns. He, he did live in Chicago for a while and traveled to various sites in Los Angeles and whatnot to actually work on his, uh, his projects. So Wright used the opportunity, uh, this is in the early 1900s, to respond to the arts and crafts movement, which was making a lot of headway in the United States at the time. The arts and crafts movement was initially founded by John Ruskin and William Morris, among others, championed in the United States uh, by uh, George Stickley and the Chicago group. Which, so it was kind of like born in the Midwest, at least in America's, uh, by America's standards. So the socialist agenda... But the thing is, is uh, William Morris had a very sort of like... Uh, strict socialist agenda. He was, uh, and Frank Lloyd Wright was kind of a Jeffersonian Democrat. He was not a socialist at all. But he began this essay uh, invoking his version of the American dream. As we work along our various ways, there takes shape within us, in some sort, an ideal, something we are to become. This, I think, is denied to very few. And we really begin to live only when the thrill of this ideality moves us in what we will accomplish. So his experience uh, on his uncle's farm in Wisconsin and as an architect taught him that machines were not necessarily a threat to craftsmen and artists, Uh, which you could see with like degrowth people. Again, this is kind of like, you see a lot of degrowth leftism, which I think is a manufacturing stagnation for the state. I think it's uh, totally beneficial for the state when people talk about degrowth. And this was prevalent within the arts and crafts movement itself. I think arts and crafts are cool. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm all down with that. But um, he... Didn't have the same techno phobia or fear that some of these other people had and he developed this Deepening conviction that in the machine lies the only future of art and craft the glorious future higher than the world has yet seen and so He was basically at odds with William Morris uh, Because they had been protesting the machine as a sort of symbol of selfishness and greed Um, but they had yet to recognize its potential. So American technological progress had taken to the machine uh, in an attempt to take to it, would undo the mischief uh, and become a great forerunner of democracy. So the outlook for artists and craftsmen was looking really, really bleak because of rapid advances in technology. We see the same stuff today with AI, with like uh, the writer strikes in Hollywood and stuff like that. So um, a lot of people were beginning to retreat into this state of cynicism, just removing themselves from the lives of ordinary people. And in their self-absorbed nihilism, this is <laughs> I'm paraphrasing the book now, they sought to combat the hell smoke of the factories they scorned to understand with little success. So it was like all of their protests against industrialization, against the machine, rage against the machine, the actual machines were done sort of in vain. Um, but the disaffected artists needed to appreciate That the machine has potential to free as well as enslave. Uh, Paul Virilio's famous quote, obviously, you know, like when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, you know, as the chaos is kind of born of invention itself. And it's this endlessly rectifying process, but you shouldn't abdicate the power of these technologies into the hands of the state itself, into the hands of other people. Um, so Greeks saw the extension of man as an essential tool of art and civilizations, except in their case, they used slaves. Uh, so it's a little bit different. Uh, slaves, slavery was partially abolished by the advances in technology as well. So there already was a kind of, uh, hidden liberation behind, uh, that as well. So so to quote Frank Lloyd Wright, he goes, The poor, sidetrack American artists needed to return from self-imposed exile and enter the fray. Artists more than any other group had the potential to lead the nation with imagination and vision. If only they would realize that the machine could become a universal educator, surely raising the level of human intelligence. So carrying within itself the power to destroy by its own momentum, the greed which in Morris's time and still in our own time turns into a deadly engine of enslavement. So the machine basically became this dividing point of the art of the old and the art to come. And Frank Lloyd Wright has a really interesting point on Uh, the way he used in his kind of like naturalist vision of architecture, he used advances in machine cutting to bring out the grain of the wood by imbuing it with a futuristic uh, shape that can serve a sort of infrastructure or structure. You could leave the surface of it alone. And he kind of lamented the craftsman, cutting ornamentation into the wood because he said it actually obscured the natural uh, properties of nature of the object more so than the machines would when they would be in service to letting the grain show, letting the properties, the essence of the material show themselves. And I think that is such a beautiful way of, of putting it. Yeah, so to continue on that, uh, he was a proponent of the machine because it supposedly, now this is clearly not the case, uh, liberated and freed human labor and broadens the life of simplest man. So this, I think, is incredibly important. Um, And I'm going to get into some sort of like modern anecdotes as well. So he pledged to use the opportunity to harness the machine architecture using these new building tools and modern plastic materials to represent the process by which technology was freeing humans. His building them standing as metaphors of a historical process he thought perfectly obvious. So these things were obvious to him, but they were not obvious to other people because Uh, There were there were many movements that were oppositional to this, as well as city planners, people who uh, within these kind of bastions and hubs of industry were very sort of like opposed, which I I kind of feel like L.A. makes so much sense for like the Hollyhock House and the Ennis House, just because it, it does kind of have that wild west spirit this is why i'll always love los angeles it it kind of encapsulates that horizontalism that he sought in rural wisconsin even though culturally uh topologically very very different so he said in in his book in his book his essay the new architecture will weave for the necessities of mankind, which his machine will have mastered, a robe of ideality, no less truthful but more poetical, and with a, another allusion to poetics, with a rational freedom made possible by the machine, beside which the art of old will be as the sweet, plaintive wail of the pipe to the outpouring of full orchestra. It will cloth necessity with the living flesh of viral imagination. As the living flesh lends living grace to the hard and bony human skeleton, the new will pass from the possessions of kings and classes to the everyday lives of all. So there, again, it it, it carries a, an egalitarian message, even though, and, a, and I think a very sort of spiritual one, that the sectarians uh people like william morris were very sort of adamantly opposed to um and he wanted to sort of alleviate the numbness of the poor uh who were sort of out in the cold they were in these shops uh and for him architecture gave them was supposed to give people uh, a true sense of importance uh and widen the margins of leisure and the magnificent grounds of progress in which he too justly plays his significant part. If the art of the Greek produced at such cost of human life was so noble and endearing, what limit dare we now imagine to an art based upon an adequate life for the individual? The machine is his. In due time, it will come to his. Very, very beautiful. In due time, it has not come to his because of, you know, the Aladdin technology of of major real estate and data holding companies such as uh, BlackRock. Again, this is why alternative spaces, structures uh, are super, super important in securing freedom for all. And one of the most important of Wright's elaborations of the American ideal was, as I was talking about earlier, uh, Broadacre City. Uh, it was the concept of the disappearing city, uh, which was based off a book published in 1932 uh, and revised as When Democracy Builds in 1945 and The Living City in 1958. So he he basically called in... Uh, and this was actually spoken at Princeton University. Harvard was the one who was working with the sectarians to to protest the machine. So there, there's not a lot of alignment among amongst even elite uh, East Coast royalist academic institutions in this in their position on free time and labor and freedom. Um, so he called it a prophetic. It was prophetic of his vision for city planning that would materialize as Broadacre City. So, for Wright, the only proper place to live out leisure's new freedom would be in the country. This is kind of like recession maxing, desert island maxing, which I think is why, especially if you're sort of an independent person working within. Modern technology, whether it's, you know, you're creating art post internet art, whatnot. I do think it is really important to have some kind of delineation between the algorithmically driven output that you do and fighting with that, struggling with that, not necessarily struggling, but grappling with that and also your day-to-day life of just like regular old fucking Texan dudes Uh, sitting in saloons and shit like it's good to be around those people it's good to put yourself in these positions Uh, I think it helps grant uh, you know because if you go to New York City it's like every single trend every fashion thing it's all mediated by the internet you want to experience life and that's basically mediated through capital and through business so it's the market the quote unquote market economy which is not a true market economy Uh, impressing itself upon your environment in places like New York City, which is, I I think, one of the reasons why I'm so critical of that place. And it's not to say, you know, this, it it it, it touches everything and everybody, but I do think that there is a bit of like truth to that, Uh, just, you know, based off what I see uh, and what, Uh, In the sort of utilitarian nature of culture and how it propagates itself through, you know, people talking about shit like Dime Square fucking 24-7 and nobody will ever shut up about it. It's not a real thing, uh, but the media vessels need it to be because it's essentially like a slogan. Dime Square is basically a slogan of, of capital, you know, for its own sake and for an optimization that doesn't touch everybody. It's, it's, it's a diversion from the attention that one could place upon their own lives uh, in securing their own kind of material freedom. So, so Wright, I think, is like the key to this. Uh, and, and in his organic architecture, a new relation to the natural world, Wright, uh, you know, he did so many amazing things and he talked about how form follows function. So form is still very, very important. Uh, but function served the same purpose for right that Aristotle's questions about causality did for Robert Maynard Hutchins. It led him to consider the purpose of his profession and then to the possibility of a self-contained, intrinsically satisfying condition or activity a final cause and that final cause is freedom it's free time it's the ability to dictate what you do in your time off that has nothing to do with like the internet or corporations You know, it's a haven from all of that. The family, uh, the new, you know, a lot of clear family is, you know, this creation of capital. But that's in many ways, you know, Christopher Lash wrote a book, Haven in the Heartless World. And I'm not completely on board with everything he says, but I, I mean, I do think that that is true. You know, it is a structure that does provide a kind of like warmth and Kindness and not every family is fucking perfect, you know. They all have their problems, but at least it's not robotic, at least it's not industrialized and and fully touched by these machinic uh competitive processes like OSINT or something like that. Um so basically, like the function entails like a kind of like imagination of what might be or become. So it it has a purpose and a dream. It's supposed to liberate you to dream and idealize. And so Wright, in his own words, uh, uh, said about organic architecture, it reinterprets and constructs an eternal idea of human freedom, an eternal idea in that it becomes and transmutes itself over time. Much like... uh, uh, Walt Whitman envisioned in his, uh, stuff on, you know, writing poetics for the future generations to come. And so uh, this is one example uses like craftsmen had been using these new technologies to work against the nature of wood, creating meaningless elaborations, carvings and decorations that obscured woods, natural color, grains, and form. Uh, but correctly, which I talked about earlier, but correctly when employed, the machine, by its wonderful cutting, shaping, smoothing, and repetitive capacity, had made it possible to bring out the beauty of wood, to so use it that the poor as well as the rich may enjoy today beautiful surface treatments of clean, strong forms that the branch veneers of Sheridan and Chippendale only hinted at. So like just as like a machine made it possible to wipe out uh the mass of like meaningless torture to which the natural uh objects have been subjected to through carving like little acorns and chipmunks into it and shit which i think looks really fucking cool like there's this guild guitar in S100 that is this, like acorn carving into it. I think it's the coolest looking guitar ever. Like I love like trinkety kind of shit. But but I, I do want to hear Frank Lloyd write out uh, because he's trying to uh, go beyond this kind of like an antiquated uh, relationship to nature and uh, man's craft with nature towards something... Uh, based on conservation and appreciation rather than trying to dominate the wood through whittling a fucking coconut, a pig fucking Tahitian, whatever. You know, which again, I love all that shit. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Antique maxing for life. I've got a whole other thing on that coming up. So, you know, some of this information may be a bit conflicting, but uh, I still think, his metaphor offers an interesting possibility. Uh, so right and to speak about the American dream, he goes, man is now to be less separated from nature. Pretty basic shit, you know? It's very naturalist, living in harmony with the natural world. Uh, individuals, you know, experiencing a kind of like return to the garden of the world through... Uh, the idyllic American dream. And so one of the ways to grow up with the ground uh, would be sort of like building one's own home in tune with the natural world uh, as a sort of simple and direct expression of organic democratic culture that he was envisioning. And he called it the Eusonian vision, which is an allusion to the to Unitarian, uh, the Unitarian Church. Um, and but he also said it was a primeval instinct, the home, uh, and to sort of transfigure a house into a home as a kind of modern sanctuary, as a religious place, uh, by devoting yourself to the machinery, Every couple of hours a person can hobby shop and fabricate the home in the way that he wants, he or she would desires. So he saw machinery as a way to construct sanctuaries in a democratic and a get egalitarian way. Now that takes craft, that takes skill, that takes hard work. I'm all for that. I'm not saying be a lazy fucker, I'm saying the opposite. Like, you have to work for your time. In order to own your time, you cannot be lazy. So, okay. And he, he says, the machine is really allowed to work for the poor and not kept working to keep the poor poor. Now, again, this is Aladdin. This is uh, from, from BlackRock. Um, so many technologies are there to create a kind of, you know, sort of vaporized software that keeps people constrained within uh, not only like speculative assets like speculative finance and, and cryptocurrency, web three and shit like that, but also uh, through surveillance tactics and 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 stuff like that. So he basically said that the city could only imitate. These natural havens. Uh, And once you open these spaces up, humans will sort of naturally get together in an instinct of the community. You see this a lot in Bernard DeVoto's writing on the Wild West. Bernard DeVoto was very committed to sort of American, Americana, and Americanism, but he also railed a bit against capitalism. Because he said, like, the true nature of the Wild West was that they moved in communities. It was very communal and, and communistic in a certain sense. Like, the original pioneers of America were rugged individualists, but they had to do so to provide for their wagons and, and communities and towns. There wasn't this, the, it wasn't just touched by pure commodification of everything. So he lamented, uh, Bernard DeVoto lamented the touching of everything into communities and communities are very important and there's a lot of stuff i'm going to get into this the next time because man this is a fucking long ass episode i mean we're already we're, we're very very close to approaching the 3 hour mark here so uh you know basically the resources of the human spirit became purchasable and life itself became purchasable. The people have sought a replica for art and creativity. They found that they have bought a substitute. The merchant has become the ruler for the time being of man singing, dancing, dwelling, and being. So the merchant in Frank Lloyd Wright's vision took the place of this sort of Ecstatic joy that Robley, that uh, Bakhtin sp- uh, wrote about in Rabelais and his world on carnival, and jubilee, and Whitman and his uh, democratization of the poet priest as something that flows outward and touches the soul and the spirit of everybody. So, like modern work had gone just basically completely wrong, and that government was overreaching because Wright was kind of a libertarian. He was very uh, socially liberal, uh, but he, he talked a lot about uh, how the government had overreached its bounds and control over the realm of freedom, uh, providing this kind of modicum of police protection. Uh, you know, a lot of people are critical of Frank Lloyd Wright. A lot of people who are socialists and, and statist apologists Because they say that it's like shallow and idealistic and basically like anarchy, but it's not because anarchy is egoistic. It's rooted in people like Max Stirner and, you know, and and it's like a kind of like individualistic Hegelian ends towards... Ultimate self satisfaction, and what he's preaching is the exact opposite of that. This is actually more in line with communism, even though he was called an anti-communist. Um, it, you know, it's like so. Where does laissez-faire demo- democracy fit in with all this? Now, damn Jehu, the the very sort of uh, hot uh, topic blogger of the moment which I've been reading his work for, for quite some time, who talks about communism as real time is free time and nothing else, uh, he actually sort of echoes the, the anti-governmental sentiments. But the difference between an anarcho-capitalist and someone like Jehu, who's essentially a Maoist, is that the way the social relations are structured once we do away with the government and harness the means of production will be vastly different. It will be more communistic. He laments uh, in many ways uh, the takeover of Deng, uh, of Deng, and, and he hates Xi Jinping. And this makes a lot of the MAGA communists really mad. But I 100 percent agree with him that Xi Jinping is a fucking fascist. Uh and, and he says this because there's no desire. First off, they did away with the communes. The communes forced the peasantry into the cities, which is the exact thing that Frank Lloyd Wright warned against, you know, that uh, that bec- that everything became about the city, became about industrialization itself, just to eat. So the peasantry were forced into the industrial uh, centers once they did away with communization and tried to sort of liberalize or marketize the economy. So this is, I think it's really interesting too, because uh, Franklin Wright also gets called sort of like a 21st century conservative by certain people. But Wright, he believed that fascist Italy, Germany, and communist Russia together with capitalist Countries had dramatically increased social organization, so uh, you know he's a little bit different here. He he is a, this is a veers a, a tiny bit into anarchistic uh, idealism, uh, but he also had the view, and this is the view of uh, Marxist uh, Ron Paul Maoist like Jehu. Like let's not call this. I, I want to stay away from internet li, uh, linguistic terms because these aren't actual movements. They're just things that people throw around on the internet. They shouldn't be given too much weight. I don't believe in this whole thing like you can meme a political reality into existence. We already tried it over the past four years. It clearly fucking failed. So, But Wright had this view that government should be increasingly remote and irrelevant. He wanted to do away with the government. And it was the logical outcome of of his hope that the realm of freedom would continue to expand as you did away with the government as machines provided humans with basic necessities. uh, They might actually just choose to leave the economy. Like if you have a 3d printer and you can just start printing stuff that you want to print it, it, it engenders the ability for you to leave the market, the neoliberal economy. It, 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 so this is incredibly important stuff. Uh, And he talks a little bit about the big boys of finance. I love that term, big boys of finance and industry. So we might now dream of a time when there will be less government, yet more ordered freedom. The machine will then have become the liberator of human life. And our architecture will reflect this. And so he wanted to to have a freedom, an architecture that yielded the freedom to come of, of man And woman and child liberated from the constrictions of social organization in the state. So, you know, Wright had basically, you know, the only sort of outcome of Broadacre City was uh, shown at Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia, which featured a scale model of Broadacre City. Uh, but I think the the idyllic dream of Broadacre City should live on in all of us. And, and it should continue with our vision pushing forward uh, just as it did in his art and craft of the machine paper. So I think this is really great stuff. And to end on this, Uh, And to to sort of parallel Whitman, he basically claimed that his hope that people would become desperate, that the dream was being neglected and forgotten. The power of the machine and the machinations of powerful, selfish people in corporations, professions, and the government, they were choking out the growth of freedom. And it might finally destroy the promise of democracy, which we've again, we're seeing. Uh, but again, these are in, uh, we're trying to take individual steps here for ourselves that we can realize them for others. So, and he observed we are imprisoned. Novelty is mistaken for progress, he asked. What of real sun, real air, real leisure? And he finally lamented that the machine is running away. Okay, so that concludes the end of that. And I'm going to get into community theaters a bit uh, next time because we've got some we got some good stuff coming up here. And also some some modern parallels. And I think that and this actually goes into people like Peter McKay, uh, who tried to build a life dedicated to America's growing free time. Oh man. So so we're already at the three hour mark here. Uh, But I wanted to end on this uh, just before we, uh, before I I get into the second part, because I think I'm going to make this a series. I want to know what you guys think of this. I think this stuff is really important. Uh, I'm super fascinated by it. I love doing the research. I love reading the books um, this is kind of, you know, it's very special to me because, you know, added all this like fucking like parasocial podcast shit. There just isn't enough out there, I think, to inspire people to kind of take the reins for themselves. You know, it's like I don't want to see a coquette wayfish fucking like art hoe uh, doing their like, you know, fashy uwu like bullshit like that just that sounds stupid to me i'm not not super down with that i'm not that interested in it i think um it takes you know to sort of imbue your life with lore like that goes very it's very against the whitman Whitman notion of the poetics that we can all that we're all supposed to enjoy that art and leisure and contemplation are things for everybody you know like the beautiful music of vinnie riley that he made out of his sadness and his his trauma you know that that art can flow out to others and and touch the spirits of other people i think is incredibly important against this kind of rot and void of nihilism that we see ourselves today but to follow mckay I just want to say that this is a really great quote from Otto H. Kahn, the chairman of the Metropolitan Opera Company in the 1930s. And he explained uh, when organizing community theaters, places of art and stuff, he said, I believe in de- decentralization in everything, in government, in business, and in art, in line with the community theater. He noted, It is from these local places that our real art will spring because people have more time for contemplation, more leisure, more creative effort. And Kahn proposed to stimulate local talent, observing that America is rich in talent. It is latent everywhere, but we just have to encourage it. So that concludes that. You know, we're going to get a bit into the dirtbag left PSYOP stuff uh, question later, which I don't think these guys are PSYOPs, I'll be honest with you. But I think they're beholden to a set of uh, incentives by people that uh, coincides with the Malthusian eugenicist agenda of the state, which is why they said nothing about COVID. I I can't say that because I'll get fucking censored on Spotify, whatever Thought, bleep that bleep that out um but i think it's important because truth does in fact matter and so we're trying to be truthful and and spread uh joy and love and this is the essence of the omni cringe. thank you guys good night